or so. All right. All right. So we're live. There's six thumbs up, which is pretty good considering we haven't <laughs> we haven't even said anything yet. But uh, yeah, there's still. I don't think there's any live guys at the moment. It's just thumbs up. But we can. Uh, uh, I wonder how many of those thumbs ups will remain once we're done. Oh, uh, I don't think you can take. Oh, maybe you, you can take them back. I don't know. Well, we still yeah, have the thumbs down. The, uh, you know, I haven't got the thumbs mm. down guy yet. Oh, there's two people, three people. They're starting to come in. Yeah, that the, that little thumbs down guy is. Uh, I, I actually get happy every time. <laughs> every time I see the little thumbs down, it's like I've achieved success again. <laughs> <laughs> Still living rent free in his brain. <laughs> okay, there's eleven people. Some people are starting to say hi. I don't know if you can see the chat or not. Uh, no, I'm just going to open the thing here. Okay, on my computer. Uh, Nikito Bear says, "Ha, first <laughs> about time, about time you did something first." <laughs> Chad Hedgecock goes, "Yes, good start to a three day weekend." Uh, he, I guess he made it. It's 11, 12 people now. Scully, how are you, Scully? Good evening. Good evening to you, sir. I, I am ready with my uh, lubricant of choice, which in this case is a pink Moscato, which sounds quite gay, actually, to be honest. But uh, there you go. And uh, no, there's at least one viewer, and I don't, don't really want to make fun of him, but he sent me some really odd emails. Um, uh, it's DPM. I don't think he minds me saying he's on Social Galactic. He sent me this weird email saying, "Will you stop? I'm not susceptible." And it's uh, screen captures of like <laughs> my talk and a screen capture of a bottle of wine, which I don't believe is one I've ever drunk, but it, it's a rosé, and it like links it to like pictures of like the Crusaders with a flag and a red cross, and I'm like, what? I, I think he's thinking that I'm like hypnotizing people to become crusaders in some really subliminal thing, which was, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, I don't know what the email well, was about, but I reckon he's probably spiraling right now <laughs> if he's watching. <laughs> anyway, I think we've got 15 people. That's good enough. The stragglers can catch up later. So, um, we were going to talk about um, some ancient Hebrew words, and I've gone back to my old faithful, where 26 years ago I wrote about this stuff, and I've sort of bookmarked myself a little page. And if you don't mind, there's hardly anything more boring than an author doing a reading of his own crap, but um, I'm just going to read about um, one, maybe, maybe two paragraphs or so. Of, uh, of what I wrote here, just to give a bit of context. Uh, so on th this is one of the appendixes where I'm talking about stuff that happened in the past and how certain elements of Genesis refer to things that could be seen as um, ancient astronaut stuff. Um, I'm going to just see if I can move the Kurgan thing over my head so that I'm not hiding your face too much. There we go. I think that's better. Um, and uh, so I'm talking about those various different things and the Nephilim and the word Shem and so on. Uh, so the, the actual word Nephilim and Shem um, is their interesting words. And I'm just going to read a little paragraph to sort of introduce it. 
So let us, however, confine ourselves here to showing just two alternative interpretations of parts of the Old Testament. The word Shem, as investigated by Zechariah Sitchin, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think we'll get into the Sodom and Gomorrah stuff, but what has since uh, been discovered... Now, I, I proposed this 26 years ago uh, when I wrote this book. Um, but it has since been essentially proven by geologists, and there was a couple of programs done on Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it was part of a Bible series or something like that, where they basically showed that um, there was an asteroid impact that sort of hit that area where Sodom and Gomorrah was supposed to be, and there's pretty much nothing left. And I know it was an asteroid impact because some of the rocks have one side of them totally melted as though it's hit like a really high temperature, but the opposite side isn't. And, you know, that's yes. pretty much a flash boom. If you, stand, if you actually stand in the Israeli side, or like the, what it would be, it would be the western side of the Jordan, yeah. and the and the Dead Sea, and you're looking over into Jordan, the cliffs on the other side are almost sheer. Almost. Okay. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of wear and tear. Yeah. But uh, it does look like someone just took a cheese, you know, a cheese cutter wire and just... Yeah. That's Cut down. Very interesting. Um, and anyway, again, I'll just give a little, I'll just read this paragraph because it's sort of interesting. It gives it a bit of context. Sitchin, by the way, Zachariah Sitchin has been criticized as being a bit of a fraud, a bit of a fantastic fantasist and whatever. But my understanding is he's translated a lot of the old Babylonian tablets. And that's how he came up with these Anunnaki, which sounded really weird. You know, these Anunnaki were supposed to live for thousands of years and they were like gods and... And I pretty much ignored that aspect of it and sort of thought after a while that Sitchin was probably gone off the deep end until I saw a program by a South African guy, funnily enough. It's on YouTube somewhere, but I can't remember the name of it. About a two-hour video of this guy going around to look at what they call these kraals, these circular formations made of specific types of rocks, which in South Africa, there's plenty of them, and they sort of think of them as kraals. Kraals were like um, what the local people used to build, like a circular formation with some wood to keep the cows in at night so that they wouldn't get eaten right. by wolves and whatever, lions and what have you. But the thing is, this guy has counted these kraals, and there's people that have been counting how many of these things exist in the African plains for about, you know, since thousand, the year 1800 or something. And there's hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, there's more of these things, even... The, the way he's worked it out is like, look, even if one guy only had like five cows, he would have had to have a population of like millions just to build these things. And we know that there wasn't that many people and certainly there wasn't that many cows. So like, what we the hell going on? We think we know that there weren't that many people. Uh, yeah, well, you know, from what we know, historically, supposedly, there wasn't. Um, the other really interesting thing that he's done is he's gone inside these circular formations with like um, cell phones and magnetometers and all sorts of stuff. And there's definitely some weird stuff going on there. I mean, one of these places, which is one of the bigger ones, you can literally walk in three meters and you've got no cell phone reception, like zero bars. You walk outside of it and you've got full bars. So it's kind of strange. Um, and he reckons that there is something to the story of these Anunnaki that he basically used humans as gene genetically engineered monkeys to mine gold. That's what Sitchin says is described in the Babylonian tablets. And this guy sort of concurs. Um, I don't know. It sounds really weird, but there is another 
strange connection to this whole Anunnaki Babylonian thing, which is the, the king lists of the Egyptians. Because the king lists go from God, demigod, human, but this separation from God, demigod, humans um, is, is one continuous list. And Egyptologists basically randomly say, oh, you know, the gods and the demigods bit, oh, that's just myth. But from here on, whether humans, that's historical fact. But it's one list. Right. You know, it's like you take this book and you say, well, up to this page, it's all mythology. And then after that, it's all factual. It's just nonsense. And the weird thing is that these kings, according to the king list, used to live thousands of years. So there's, there's multiple points of, um, shall we say, indicators that point to the same thing. Now, whether that's because they have a common history, whether that's because they've got common facts, whether that's common mythology, hard to tell. But anyway, to continue with the word Shem. So Sitchin points out that already over a century ago, G.M. Redslob published a study in which he correctly pointed out that the word Shem, that's S-H-E-M, but I'm assuming that in Hebrew that's just be S-H-M. It's actually just two letters, Shin and Men. Ah, okay. That means that it's a very old word as well. Right. Stems from the same root as Shemaim. I hope I'm pronouncing these right. That's S-H-A-M-A-I-M, like S-H-A-M-A-I-M. Yeah. Uh, he, he translates it as heaven. But yeah, heaven and sky. I, I know that being Italian, we have the same yep. word, essentially. Uh, namely, so the root word, namely, is the word Shama, that which is high word. Uh, and that's spelled S-H-A. over there. Yeah, S-H-A-M-A-H, according to the spelling. Uh, Hebrews, most languages, even if it is only dimly recognized in newer ones, such as English, has the characteristic of having meanings for names and words, meanings which are sometimes much deeper than those already implied by the word itself. A good example in English of this sort of hidden meaning is perhaps the word Wednesday. We all know that this, generally speaking, refers to the name of, um, of one of the weekdays. But not all of us realize that each name of the week, as well as of each month, has primitive roots indeed, and that those roots are well embedded in the worship of multiple gods. Um, so, for example, the, the word, um, and then I carry on here, I'll read this a little bit just because it's interesting for some people. In the Romantic language, this is more evident, since the weekdays have names which are very close to the original ancient Roman or Greek names of the relevant gods. But one cannot at first easily see how the Italian Mercoledì, which is in honor of the god associated with the planet Mercury, Mercurio in Italian, has anything to do with the English Wednesday. If one is made aware, however, that the Germanic people called the same god Odin or Woden, and hence the Dutch Wednesdag, we can easily see that even though not at first apparent, perhaps, the name Wednesday has indeed connotations to the very same ancient gods, as does a lot of our present-day language, even if this is seldom recognized. And this is a dying art because, you know, most people don't even bother reading books now. Now, I believe that Hebrew has got like a few more levels and layers of that sort of thing in its uh, etymology. So I shall now shut up and let you take over about the word Shem and educate me and everyone else here. Uh, well, Shem, as I already said, is a very old word. One of the reasons I think it's such an old word is because it only has two letters. So in the Hebrew language, the way it's structured is that every word has a three-letter root form, which is gen you can generally suss it out by um, saying the word in its past tense male single form. That'll generally tell you what its uh, root form is. 
Um, but the really, really old Hebrew words only have two letters. Right. Or sometimes it's a double letter, like the word water or mim is mem yud mem. So it's the same letter twice. Uh-huh. So it's still a two letter root form. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, um, the word for sky in Hebrew or heavens is shamayim. Yeah. Which is, if you break it up, it's two words, shamayim or water over there. <laughs> and it's actually it's actually hooking back into the creation myth yes. where God separates the water above and below. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a water that's yeah. taken away from the earth. Yeah. So there's well, that, that little connection there. So, and an interesting thing about the Anunnaki, hmm. because the word um, in Hebrew for giant is Anak. Ah. Now, <laughs> yes, now the interesting thing is that in the Bible, in ancient Hebrew, the word anak is not used um, is not used to do, to denote giantism or to denote some, that something is big. Mm-hmm. If something is big, it simply says that it's big or of measure. Right. So anak is not a description; it's a proper name. Oh, <laughs> that's very interesting. I didn't know that at all. That actually ties in perfectly with what I was saying twenty years ago. More. And another thing is also the word nephil, or yeah. nephilim, yes. which in Hebrew is nephilim, yeah. which means fallen in yeah. general. It's taken from the root of falling. But what's really interesting is that the word nephil, because of its structure, you can understand the exact meaning of a word in Hebrew due to its structure. Um, so nephil, it would be like yahil, mahil, or bahil, which means it's an attribute. It's not an action. It's like saying that someone is proud or tall or yes. something. So you're saying that these people have the attribute of, of falling. falling. That that is actually I do talk about the Nephilim as as a word as well in there. Obviously not to this level of depth, which is very interesting because when I did I, I'm really sorry I do not have that book anymore. I think it's with my dad or whatever, but I had a really what I think is probably one of the better translations of the Hebrew um, Torah in in English, and there are, I know there are different. I've got two or three versions here, but I never managed to find one that was as accurate as that one. Now, the very interesting thing is that at that time I was working with a guy that was uh, ortho, relatively Orthodox Jewish and very much of a zealot to the point where he'd get into fights with people if they uh, you know made any weird comments or whatever. Um, and I, I discussed this with him, you know, he was getting a bit altered about it. And I was like, Dude, just chill, you know, we're, we're, I'm just, that's what the root word says. And that's what your book says about it. And he was like, no, that's not the best translation. And I found it really odd because I found other Orthodox Jews since that. And I can't remember, I think it's something with an S. I can't remember, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering names. And this is over 20 years ago. I do believe I still have that book at my dad's place, but I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, and that translation was somewhat vilified by Orthodox Jews when talking to Goim like myself. But among themselves, they seem to say that that was the best translation. So I found that really quite odd because I sort of thought, well, why is it that when you're talking to each other, you even you even the same guys use the same book? You know that the, the other people that because they, they studied uh, quite regularly and I was present for some of their, their studies and sort of thought, well, that's a bit odd. 
So you, you're telling me that that's a crappy translation, but that's the very same one that you use and you, you know, when you weren't, you didn't realize I was listening to what you were saying. <clears throat> you know, so that was a bit, I found that a bit odd. Now, I don't know about the uh, conspiracies about, you know, your people, <laughs> but uh, it was just a bit odd. I don't know. If, and I found that they had the, they also had commentary on there about some ancient uh, rabbis and what these guys had said about these things, about the fallen. And one of the rabbis, one of the commentaries of the rabbis specifically said that, yes, the, the angels, the fallen angels had mixed with the human females and created the titans. So, um, yeah, I was just, you know, wondering what your take on that, if that gets discussed at all in, uh, I, I, I believe you said uh, it in No. The thing <laughs> is, um, modern Jewish uh, called religious instruction yeah. centers mostly around what you could call uh, the dogma. So, um, the best way I can explain it is, I think, I think if the uh, Catholic Church's Catechism of Trent yeah. was um, a few feet thick, yeah. Yeah. and it had laws that covered your life yeah. from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Yes. And all of that is derived from the Talmud. That is what most of what uh, modern Jewish scholars study. So what do they do with Studying the Bible itself is considered risky because it's a difficult to understand <laughs> without proper training. Oh my God, that's, that's very interesting. So what most, what most pious Jews do is what's called they simply read the, um, uh, the weekly portion, as it were, because every week has its own portion within the Torah and within the prophets. They read that, and you read it twice in the Hebrew and once in the Aramaic. Okay. And you simply, it's simply a matter of, um, well, accumulating breadth and uh, familiarity. Yes. But not death. That's, that's so, yeah, that, that is. That's, that's actually, I mean, and we, you'd be going here into Jewish politics. Yeah. But once we came back to Israel and the Hebrew language was resuscitated, yeah. um, there's a, call it a, a stream within Judaism nowadays that's all about studying Hebrew and the Bible. And they and the black hats are very much at odds with each other. Oh, okay. black hats—that's the uh, yeah, the deep state. Not the deep state. The black hats. I mean the um, like the Haredi Jews. Oh, the, the, type, the type you think of those with the big black hats the and the side curls. Right. Okay, why is that? What, what would so the 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 second type that is very interested in Hebrew is what's called um, well nationalist religious. Yes. While the Haredim are still, still, as far as they're concerned, they're still living in the diaspora. The fact that they're in Israel yeah. doesn't negate the fact that they're still in, in the exile because they're not under Jewish theocratic rule. Right. So I, I'm trying to understand this. So I, I will probably offend everybody, including Jews, non-Jews, and with my questions. But it's through ignorance, not through intent of offending anyone. Um, so my impression which might, why I'm asking, I might be completely wrong, but my impression was the, the black hat guys, as you call them, I would consider them the, uh, the um, what do you call it, the, 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 the progeny of essentially the Pharisees. Yes, that's, that, and that's in fact what they call them, which in Hebrew is Pushim, which okay. simply means the separated. Okay, 
So, because my, my understanding, well, this is how I simplistically think of it, right? So you've got the Old Testament that, as far as I'm concerned, in my simplified way, is 400 years of prophecy telling you that Jesus is going to come. Then you have Jesus, recognize Jesus at all, other than heretic who's burning in hell. Uh, one branch, which essentially becomes Christians, because they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and they they naturally progress to Christianity. Um, and then there is what I would think of perhaps as a third element, which is, and I've, I've worked and met quite a few of these guys on Origins in Africa, which are um, ethnically and religiously Jewish, and they do study a bit of the Talmud, Torah, and so on. But to all intents and purposes, they're what I would call Jewish churchians to a certain extent. They, yes, there's what you'd call synagogians. Yeah, synagogians. There you go. That nice one. They come. They come to. They come to pray on the Day of Atonement and Passover. That's it. And those guys, I am a little bit at odds to think where they fall in because they're clearly not Christian. They they're clearly quite. You know, when you get to know them and you get a bit friendly with them, they're they're quite. Uh, outspoken about oh well jesus was just a whoremonger and what have you they're they and they don't but they're not militant against christians they're just they're sort of like yeah you guys don't know anything we have got an older history than you blah 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 that sort of thing but on the other hand i don't consider them pharisees either because they don't they don't really know that much i think about their own uh, history yeah. so yeah synagogians is probably a a good name, and I consider those guys, those synagogues, I actually consider them a younger religion than Christianity, because I, I see Christianity as the continuation of, you know, what started with the Jews and then became for everybody, sort of thing. Um, while these guys are so sort of stuck in limbo, they're not, they're not Pharisees and, and they're not Christians. So that, to a certain extent, I think they're part of a completely false religion, just like I think Protestantism is a completely false religion. I'm um, just wondering what your take on it was. Um, they're, they're basically lukewarm souls. There's not much. There's not a lot to say about them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some yeah. some of them. I mean, really, there isn't a lot to say about them. Some. I mean, most of them are decent enough people. Yeah. So they're they're, they're repelled. They're probably repelled by the uh, over overly officious and legalistic nature of modern Judaism. Yeah. And they they probably find the um, the anti-Christian sentiment like the the truly vicious anti-Christian sentiment that you can find among the Haredim to be also repellent. Yeah. So and, but they don't they don't go look for something positive. <clears throat> they just divest themselves from the negative and just meander through life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's most uh, churches in, in every denomination. I think that's. Uh, um, getting back to the original Hebrew words, I've got somewhere yes. an Aramaic Bible, which um, a lot of my so-called Protestant friends on Facebook and whatever like they laugh and say, "Oh, there's no such thing as the Aramaic Bible," and I'm like, "Why are you such?" All a right, is it time for a history lesson? Yeah. I think it is. All right, so take off, please, please, please. <laughs> let me remind. Let me remind all the people here that um, after the first temple was destroyed, all of the Jews who were there, all of Israel, at least well, the remnant, because ten ten of the tribes were already exiled beforehand by Sanhaliv, and they were dispersed among the empire and disappeared. Mm. So the two remaining tribes, which are Judah and Levi, which means the tribe of kings and the tribe of priests. Okay. And remnants from all the other tribes. That's basically what was left. 
all of that was exiled to Babel. Yeah. The place that speaks Aramaic. Right. Okay. And they remained there for 70 years until, um, I'm not sure how to say it in English, but Dali, but Daliavish breaks, brings forth his proclamation and allows the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild the temple. Okay. So, um, what's the scribe's name? I forgot, I forget the scribe's name, but he's, I believe he's a priest. Yeah. And a prophet, and he leads the Jews back to Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Only the, um, like, the, like the common man, like the, the artisans, the blue and the blue, like the blue collar workers yeah. are the only ones who decide to return to Jerusalem. Okay. <laughs> All the intelligentsia, most of the priesthood and most of the, and most of the, of the kingly tribe stay in Babel. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, like, life is good there. Yeah. Just like it is right now, for now, at least in the USA. There's no reason to return to Israel. Yeah, yeah, very life is good in the flesh pots yeah, of the yeah, diaspora. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, That's very so, so, so Jewish intelligentsia, since the destruction of the Second Temple, is in Babel, and it speaks Aramaic. So the, the whole, and Hebrew and Aramaic are very close languages. Yeah. So, and the people who return to Israel... They speak Aramaic. Yeah. That's the language they grew up on. Yeah. I mean, that's technically that's the language that Jesus and his apostles spoke, right? I mean, yeah. that's what they and spoke. I mean, and also, I mean, and, I mean, I, we don't particularly like the book, but the Talmud itself is written in an argot of Hebrew and Aramaic with a few uh, Hellenic loanwords. Yeah. There's, there's even some Greek in it. Very interesting. I didn't know about the Greek bits. And, and again, the other thing I think... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, which mm. uh, were in Aramaic, as far as I know, at least parts of them were in Aramaic. Yes, um, some some were in Aramaic and some were in Hebrew. And I, if I'm again, if I'm not wrong, I believe that there was uh, fragments of the Gospel of Mark that were in Aramaic as well, that were found. Possibly, uh, but I don't know. I don't know much about um, the Gospels as yeah. far as translations and all that go. I, I believe that's and the case. Yes, to uh, used, just just want to answer a question in the chat. Oh. To unseen eleven, yes, there are two versions of the Talmud, one that was written in Babel and one that was written in Israel. Um, the one that was written here in Israel has a somewhat harsher tone. That's mostly the difference. It's a lot more judicious and uh, okay. uh, how do I put it? Sorry, it's a lot less merciful than the one written in Babel for whatever reason. So this was a question from one of the guys. In it's the in the chat from Unseen Eleven. Okay, I I haven't. Uh, I'm just trying to quickly catch up. I've just been ignoring the chat up to now. So where are we? Um, Monkey God wasn't Shem. Well, I've got a question here from Pewian Bear. Wasn't Shem a soul of a mythical golem? Don't know. Oh, that. Well, the word Shem in modern Hebrew, and also in old Hebrew, so you have to make the distinction. You have modern Hebrew, you have old Hebrew, right. you have medieval Hebrew, and you have ancient Hebrew. Yeah. There's a few, it has a few forms through the years. Now, Shem is also the word for word. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> it's a rather uh, multifaceted word. Right, because that now, word... The legend of the golem yeah. has a scroll placed within his head. Yeah. That has the words uh, truth, that has the word in Hebrew truth written on it, because it emit. So how does That's that the, relate to the little box that the Orthodox guys put on their head? Uh, well, the little, it doesn't relate at all, but the, the little box is a very literal translation 
uh, and understanding, and also, as far as I understand it, also um, borrowing of a pagan custom, I think from uh, Egyptian priests. Okay, I didn't know. Of that. literally, of, of literally tying phylacteries of holy writ to your body. Like if you think of all the charms you find mummies yes, um, yes, yes. sconced with, oh, they're cool. all inscribed with uh, with hieroglyphs. I yeah, think from the Book of the Dead spells or the Book stuff, yeah. and Forth. Which one? That's true. Actually, I remember that some from somewhere. So, so the the, the phylacteries, which is one here and yeah. there's one here yeah, on the left arm, yeah. they both contain uh, just just uh, tracts of scripture. Okay, and then we've got another question. P one bear woolly ram. Isaiah 51, is this ever commented by your people, scholars? I mean, pieces literally speaking about not. Jesus a thousand years before. Of course not. They kind of, uh, they, we, I actually know a Jewish rabbi who is a Christian, however, what I guess you call Messianic Jews, I, I don't know. But anyway, he, he believes Jesus was the Messiah, and he did comment on it. He had a blog post somewhere as well, um, and he clearly referenced it as, well, this is pretty obvious, and that's why I'm a Christian, sort of thing. So, yeah. Do they just, I mean, do, does anybody ever ask about that? And is he like beaten down, or I mean, wh how, or is it just ignored? It's just ignored. That's the easiest way to deal with these sort of things. Right. Oh, apparently we were frozen for a little bit. Uh, we won't make it through the winter. <laughs> yes, it stops when Woolley leaves the picture, possibly censorship. My question was deleted, I assume by algorithm. I don't know what your question was. I, I can see... All right, Unseen 11, I see the question there. Is the two versions of the Talmud. Nikito Bear, I don't know what your question was. Shoot it up again. Um, I don't know why it's freezing for some of you guys. I've never had any problem freezing before, but I've got my Catholic infiltrator in Israel now, so... All sorts are probably going to come up. <laughs> Get your paranoia up. Uh, point of freeze winter. Okay. That's why ancient Hebrew studies are risky. <laughs> Inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's, actually, that's actually a thing. Um, there, was a, there was a flowering of the study of ancient Hebrew and, um, and, the, and the Bible itself, not just instead of just the Talmud, in Spain. Right before there was a wave of conversions to Catholicism. Yeah. So. Oh. <laughs> you know a lot of cool stuff. Carry on. <laughs> it's just it's 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 a small it's a small factor that I collected, and I, I don't recall I don't recall the name of the saint, but there was a saint who was famous for wandering about Spain and just going from community from Jewish community to Jewish community, and he challenged the rabbis to debate. And wherever he got to, there'd be mass conversions. That is awesome. I need to find out who that guy was. Because, that, you know, the interesting, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of nothing to do with, well, a little bit to do with ancient Hebrew, I suppose. But when I was in South Africa and I was working as a, as a bodyguard, one of the guys that organized all the clients, because um, we all had specific roles, and he basically organized the clients and he was the sort of team leader. I was the guy that basically goes in before, comes out last, or doesn't come out at all if it goes bad or whatever. Uh, and no, nobody knew who I was. I, people didn't even know I was part of the team whenever we did this stuff. And uh, But I used to have very long philosophical arguments with him about God and the Bible and all sorts. You know, It was, it was really interesting, actually. Uh, at one point, he eventually, in frustration, said, 
because I, I used to label myself an atheist because I didn't really believe in it. Any, any frustration? I remember one day I said, "But you're not an atheist. You're not. Just look at how you behave. You're not an atheist." And I said, "Well, then what the hell am I?" He goes, "You're you're you're a Taoist. And if I wasn't Jewish, I'd be a Taoist." <laughs> 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 It was quite interesting, really. Um, and I did have some very uh, interesting conversations with him. And I must say, he, he did pick out one thing that was correct, which is basically said, look, the reason that you call yourself an atheist is because I told him the story of the priest and what he said about you know Jesus dying for your sins and all that. And he said, you just came across this idiot and you threw out the baby with the bathwater. He said, all this stuff is all bullshit and everything connected to it must be bullshit too. So you didn't bother to like, delve deeper into it. Now, having said that, he was militantly against Christians and especially Catholics. And pretty much so was I at the time because I thought, well, just a bunch of pedophiles and freaks. So who cares? Um, and, you know, now I'm a very hardcore Catholic. I wonder what our conversation would be like or if it would become... Uh, Nonverbal very quickly because <laughs> 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 uh, uh, you know he's definitely a zealot in his uh, Jewishness, and I'm now very much a zealot in my Catholicism. So it would be like I yeah. don't know <laughs> one of those stand-up like, interesting. I don't, I don't know if I'd say interesting, but I've always preferred zealots to lukewarm people. Oh, me too, absolutely. Um, and and <clears throat> I say this both as pre- and post-Christianity. Uh, uh, yeah. Even like as an atheist, and I know I know it's a bit of a, like a brain that moved, but once I decided like to basically stop being, being a practicing Jew, I knew quite instinctively that I needed a, I needed a framework, a philosophy to go by. Mm -hmm. And I gravitated very quickly to just to Randian um, egoism. Oh. Now, so, <laughs> what if, I mean, whatever... Whatever her virtues may be, she is not lukewarm. Oh, no, no. Uh, That's very interesting because as a teenager, I read quite a bit of Aynid Rand. Um, here's another little funny tidbit. An architect guy that we knew back in Botswana, uh, you know, who fancied himself a very intelligent man, Liverpoolian. So I think anybody that knows people from Liverpool knows what I'm about to say. They're all stunned. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... So I'd read, uh, amongst one of our other books, I read the, the Fountainhead, which was considered a classic of architecture and so on and so forth. And it was my practice back then to make notes in whatever book I wrote, agree, disagree, make comments, you know, so I commented throughout the book. And then this guy, who was basically my friend's dad, right, he said, oh, he came to our house, saw the books, oh, you, you got, oh, can I borrow it? And, I was like, I'm very loath to loan books because I love books and they never get back. And you know, but anyway, I said, yeah, go ahead. Then I forgot about it, whatever. Twenty years later, I go to his house to visit. I said, oh, my book's there. He goes, that's not your book. That's my book. Of course, I've read the Fountainhead. I said Billy, picked it out of the of the of the of the of his bookcase. I said Billy, this has got my notes in it. You see this? This is my handwriting. See that? It's all over the book. You stole it. Just admit it, you stole a book from your kid's friend because you're too cheap to buy your own. And I put it back in there. Not stealing, that's just long-term borrowing. <laughs> no, 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 it was stealing when he said it was his and it had nothing to do with me. That's stealing. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I'm always reminded of, I don't know if you saw the film Out of Africa with Robert Redford. I don't watch movies. Okay. It's I'm, I'm mostly a gamer, so movies just don't really interest me. Oh, right. I, I honestly see them as an inferior medium. Um, 
I don't disagree with you, given your perspective, and I sort of understand that. I mean, I I have gained. I haven't had a chance to in the last probably 20 years or so, but I get where you're coming from. But there is a very brilliant line in that film, and it is where Robert Redford is, uh, you know, he's flying in and out of Africa and whatever, and he comes, meets up with his friends. They're all having a cognac or whatever. And one of them asks, oh, where's Dennis? You know, your, your great friend Dennis. Oh, what's happened to him? And Robert Redford goes, oh, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Dennis in 15 years. Goes, but, but John, he was like your best friend. What happened? Well, he borrowed a book and never returned it. <laughs> and they're all like, he goes deadly quiet. And, and the guy that's talking to him goes, but, but John, you, you're not a man to lose a friend over a book. And immediately Robert Redford goes, no, I'm not. But Dennis is. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, because, uh, you know, <laughs> if, if he wasn't, you would have given my fucking book back. <laughs> that was brilliant. Uh, and I'm not quite that bad, but, you know, I've had a lot of cool books taken and never returned. So I'm like, mm, I still lend them out. Yeah, but it's like I keep track. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get, like, some, um, you know, mass production paperbacks. Oh uh, yeah, I got. I, I actually have people them. Alone. I've got them here. I don't know if AJ Rhino's on there, but they're here. They're gonna be mailed uh, this weekend. I just haven't had a chance, man. It's just been. Uh, there's there's a guy who's. He was adamant he wanted signed copies, and it's a pain in the ass. And I said, dude, oh, you know. But he he was so awesome. I thought, okay, fine, I'll do it for you. So they're they're going out this weekend. Uh, okay, let's just see if there's, there's a couple more questions. Dances with Logos says Wooly Ram is lovely. Yes, he is indeed. That's the high priestess of the Kurgan cult, so that's high praise indeed. Uh, lovely stream. Oh, excellent. That's good. It wasn't that important. I'll ask it later. Not going to derail the topic. Dude, if you haven't understood that chaos is the air we breathe here, you know, go ahead and ask your question. Is there a spot in Israel where the Blessed Virgin was assumed into heaven? Sorry if questions are off topic. It's not off topic. It's a good question. I have no idea. As far as I know, um, Our Lady, well, she, well, according to, well since, since she basically had a direct line to uh, to our Lord, she basically knew very well to get, well, to get the, the um, well, not the hell, to get out of Dodge. Yeah. So as far as I know, she and I think it was the disciple uh, John. Yeah. They both left to uh, what's now called uh, what's now called Turkey. Oh. But I think I think there was supposed to be a small church where they lived, and uh, I, I think it was it was basically a sort of um, retreat house for the disciples until she was assumed. So once the uh, once the work of being a disciple started to bear too heavily on the disciples, they returned to Our Lady and to John for uh, basically spiritual nourishment. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's that's very interesting. That's, uh, you know, there's a lot of like the Protestants going about Mary, and they, they really bash at her quite viciously, which I think is part of the reason that I think Protestants are... What a, what a, what a Catholic priest would call disordered. Is you know I've, yes. I have I have had a lot of uh, dealings with women that have got daddy issues um, in my life, um, and I think Protestants basically have got some mummy issues because the way they talk about Mary and the, and the kind of viciousness against it, and I've noticed it it trickles off into the way they relate to their own wives, women in general, and so on. 
And there is a very, uh, again, binary way of thinking about it. And it's sort of like, well, women are just inferior and should do what they're told. And, you know, and it's like, dude, that's not what it actually says in the Bible. Read the damn book. You know, women are different. They're, they, yes, they need to be led and all that, but it's not a, a harsh sort of, you know, you're a second class citizen. It's sort of like your role is to follow, but they have a whole world of, of beauty and, and nourishing and so on that, that we need. So the Catholic approach, I think, to women is a lot more healthy, I believe. Um, and, you know, and I'm not saying, look, you know, when we're talking about churchens or whatever denomination, they're, they're all off at the deep end as well. But in general, the average Catholic knows very well to differentiate between, you know, his mom, his sister, his wife, his lover, and the mistress or whatever, you know. And, and paradoxically, although it's obviously not good, but your average Catholic can juggle a wife, a mistress, a mother, a sister, and a, a daughter without, you know, getting too discombobulated while a Protestant would probably have his head explode. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. I'm just saying they seem to have a much more um, human rounded ability of dealing with different facets of yeah. female. I think it's also, I think it's also a matter of just growing up in a, in a large family because I grew up in a fairly large family, six children. Oh, well, so I have yeah. two sisters. Yeah. So I got, women, women aren't a mystery to me. I didn't, I didn't no. like, you know, go into adulthood <laughs> sort of like, what are women? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Protestants like, you know, have the same attitude to wine, right? If, you, if you're a Protestant, it's like, oh no, do not touch the evil weed, the evil booze until you're <laughs> 21. And then when you're 21, drink three gallons a day. You know, it's like, what the hell? I mean, you know, when I was five or six, I had wine, you know, just mix it a bit with water or give you a little sip or taste it. And I've, I've been drunk precisely once in my adult life. And that was because I chose to do it on purpose because I thought, you know what? I've never been drunk. I'm going to check out what this is about. And uh, <clears throat> my wife will confirm for you there's a video, which unfortunately I can't, I can't put up <laughs> because, uh, you know, there's, there's bits of it where I think she's half naked or whatever. But, I mean, I am completely trashed, puking my lungs out. <laughs> and she, because of her previous life, has had uh, quite a lot of experience, shall we say, with drunk people and being drunk herself <laughs> and there's a bit in the video where she goes like oh my god you you're one of the worst cases i've ever seen you know she's like talking to herself really what filming me <laughs> because <laughs> i'm telling her no no film it because i'm compost mentis and funnily enough i was i mean i remember everything but um you know but that's that was by choice while in in anglo-saxon countries Everyone seems to get trashed every weekend, and that's just because they have to cope with the week. It's like, what the hell is that about? You know, it's sort of really strange. And I think Protestantism tends to like box people in, and we're not built that way. So, some something inside of you wants to break that's out. That's actually that's actually something um, I wanted to like expand a bit about yeah. the whole um, binary thinking and programmable people. Yes, you did say that. Yeah, I remember. Um, it was in one, in one of your posts where you were dismantling a Novus Orkian. Yeah. And well, the, the point, the, I mean, I, it, it actually started, it's like, I noticed it just from the way he writes. 
I think I put it in the comment that it's like, um, he, he really was incapable of like assigning more than one attribute to an object. <laughs> That's a very good description. Yes. It's like, and, and like the, the attribute can, and like the, the attribute can't be a variable. It was, it was like, it was, it was just very strange to see this sort of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's and the, the thing, and the thing is, I, I personally think that he was, I don't think it's his fault. I think that he was, yeah. um, some, someone mentally kneecapped him at some point in his life. <laughs> That, that you, is a you, very you don't think like this naturally. No, you're absolutely right. The one thing that I have to say about pretty much every Jewish person I met, and it's it's hard to to distinguish, but on average, if you take you know your average Protestant is a pretty spreadsheet type of person. Your average Jew is a much more convoluted person. They may have spreadsheets but they're in a chaotic pattern of randomness that is quite difficult for a normal human, as I think of it, to follow. And because of it, there are instances of brilliance in it, because the, the, it, it's sort of like a rabbit hole, a warren of spreadsheets in a certain, to a certain, uh, and I'm talking specifically more about Orthodox Jews, yeah, not the synagogians. Um, they have very strict sort of regulations and rules and whatever, but they sort of, all sit on top of each other in such a weird, meshy pattern that they will often come up with a, from my perspective, quite a creative or strange or uh, lateral thinking type of idea. Uh, Protestants very often, if if they have any creative elements, they, they tend to be limited to one aspect, like maybe music or maybe writing, or you know, they'll tend to be focused in one field more than. While your average, if I, if I want to say observant, shall we say, proper Catholic, you know, from the old days, they can be relatively uh, unidirectional, like they can be a musician, they could be a writer, but invariably they have multiple skills. They have, you know, they might not all be at the same level. And they're able to talk, Again, generally, unless they are a very uneducated person or, you know, limited by being a peasant that farmed his land all his life, and he might not know about whatever, Dante or, you know, writing or whatever, but you ask that guy anything about the season or cows or fields, and he'll, he'll be like an encyclopedia, you know. Um, I found that the Protestants, as a general rule, tend to be much more, I don't know how you say it in English, Oriented, like oriented, like sort of channeled, maybe in, into like um, more of a specific. Okay, I see what you mean. You, you know, like even a university. For example, if you take like what they call in English O levels and A levels, and in, in Italy we've got what you call maturity and like just before university. It's you know, and and you do get a selection, so you could go to uh, pre-university school in Italy that's to do with the arts, or you could go for the sciences, and there is. You know, you're you're doing mostly science if you're in the science one. You're doing mostly art or history of art or that sort of thing if you're in the artist one. But there's no way that you can get to just before university and not know what the capital of China is and not have taken history, geography, maths. You know, you've got all the subjects. You can't avoid taking all the subjects. Well, in the English system, you could do three O levels on English literature, English composition, 
and geography. And and you could basically be innumerate, you know, like you, you barely can yeah. add two and two together. And I found that that is a very much a special, yeah, more like a specialization, I think. That's that's what I'm trying to say, which tends it's, to lead you to be programmable, in essence. There's um, it's, it's, it's part of a larger trend I'm seeing. And this this goes way beyond religion and anything. It's um, I suppose I suppose the like um, the, the prototypical aspect of it, I'm seeing it I'm seeing it actually in um, what I call corporate behavior. Yes, where oh, you can yes. see that um, that corporations yeah. are looking for like they're looking for the one widget material from which they can make everything. Yeah. So in the United States, they're trying to use corn and um, what's it called corn and soybeans as like the material from which to make everything Jesus. Yeah. i know it sounds weird but it's like because the way they think is so um limited yes so blinkered that they, they want one like one or two controllable sources from which to derive everything now if you start if you take that sort of mindset and then you apply it to education oh. or you apply it to theology yeah 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 which is which is of course a complete inversion of how it should be. Yes. I mean, there's there's the old saw, you know, that um, politics is downstream from culture, yeah. and culture is downstream from the cult, and the cult is downstream from theology. <laughs> yeah. Like theology is supposed to be where the whole yeah the, the whole like stream starts. And you're absolutely right that it's inverted. Yeah. And it's it's actually it's also something I've noticed with a friend of mine. Um, he's basic. I don't know how you put it. Um, He's, he's basically like an old style leftist. Yeah. Like before before the SJW madness. Yes, yes. So yes. he's highly educated, highly literate. He's probably better educated, more literate than I am. Yeah. Because I mean I've never I've never set foot in a university. Yeah. Well me neither. Uh, <laughs> but I I do think I'm smarter than him. Yeah. If you, if you just mean raw mental power. Yes. But the point the point is that he interprets everything through a political uh, lens. Like he's reading the Bible, Jeez, how can you live like and that? he sees politics in the commandments. Oh my God! It's just that he looks. He looks at the um, like the, the structure of the um, Catholic Church, and again, he sees only politics. You know that that is that is actually satanic. Imagine imagine living in that kind of a brain. I mean. I don't know. I, think I can because I used to be a political junkie. Ooh. See, I avoided politics like the plague. I remember we had this ethics teacher. It's getting hot in here, so the Kurgan is not going to take his clothes off. Um, <laughs> but we, we used to have this this guy, and and his name, think of a more inapt name, was Wolf, and he was like about five foot five, leftist American, came to Africa. <laughs> Uh, to teach, you know, it was a private school funded, quite quite highly funded by Americans. He came to Africa to teach the poor disadvantaged Africans. Now, you've got to understand, in the school where I went, all the black guys that were there, they were all sons of ministers, people with money, essentially. You know, your average native of that country, there's no way they could afford that school. Even though it wasn't particularly expensive, but you know the, the disparity between the poor people or the common guy and you know the well-to-do was was huge. And so he came in there and he said, "You know, the people of Africa have been taken advantage of by the whites and blah blah blah." And he just went on his spiel, and we just the whole class went quiet. And it was really interesting to see that 
every single white person just kept quiet and leaned back and waited because we knew what was coming. And when he finished, every single one of the black guys just laid into him in a way that no white guy would have done, right? I mean, I remember the one guy, and, and he's a complete lefty now, right? I argue with him on Facebook now about Trump and whatever. At the time, he was like, what the hell are you talking about? My mate should be pr pleased and grateful that she has a job. I make her shine my shoes every day because I come to school. And she should get on her knees and be grateful that she can clean my shoes. <laughs> it was like, like full-on Nazi stuff, right? If a white guy had said that, they would have been hung. <laughs> and it was the most hilarious. You know, this guy just didn't know what the hell was happening. He was falling out of a tree, really. I don't know why I started to talk about this, but I'm on my second glass of wine, so I'll soon start being incoherent. <laughs> there is actually a good question here from Cactus Eater Bear, who, who then gets scared and tries to retract the question. Um, she says, I wanted to know how we know that Mary was assumed into heaven. My personal answer, I don't actually know. I don't believe that we know that she was buried anywhere. I don't care. I don't think it's a huge thing, and I think... It's dogmatic, like like the Trinity. It's dogmatic stuff, and I'm, I'm okay with it. Fine. Mary was a virgin. Dogmatic. I don't care. It's fine. To me, it makes no difference one way or the other. I just accept the Catholic position. But um, To be a little more structured about it, Yeah. if you also take in the dogma of um, Mary's Immaculate Conception, yeah. it means that Mary and Jesus are basically the only two humans who ever lived on this planet, barring uh, Adam and Eve, who didn't actually, who don't, whose body was not corrupted by the original sin. Yeah, correct, yeah. So it means that her body doesn't belong to this world. So it, in, a, in a simple, logical, um, like, progression, of course her body was assumed into heaven. It doesn't belong here. You see, this is what happens when you talk to proper Catholics. You learn something. <laughs> <clears throat> There's another question here, oh, about uh, Judaic Gehenna or Gehenom related to Christian hell or purgatory. So Jewish teaching on the afterlife is um, somewhat schizophrenic. So you, you'll have passages um, in the Talmud, for example, of a sage who gets taken up into heaven for a moment mm -hmm. and he returns and he says to, and he says to, his, uh, to his father, I think, like, um, I've, I saw an upside down world. And his father replies, no, this world is upside down. Yes. The next world, everything is turned up right. That, you know, that's very interesting you said that. I wasn't aware of that, but I, I can relate to you that my experience of when I had my road to Damascus moment, which I've mentioned a few times, um, that was absolutely the, the, the overwhelming. I, I can't, there's no way I can put into words how powerful this, uh, this perception was that every single moment even including the really good moments of my life here on earth were absolute sewage <laughs> compared to what i had caught a glimpse of and and how that reality is so much more real and and important than and true and I, I don't know how to say real in, in a much more word than the word real can ever possibly express but it's an absolutely different plane of existence that is a much is so far removed in terms of reality and correctness and truth and simplicity and beauty 
There is absolutely nothing on this world that can compare to it, except I would say possibly the very deep emotions that you have of, you know, love between your children or your your wife if you've got a good marriage, that sort of thing. They 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 are the closest thing that approaches to to that level of perfection that I caught a glimpse of, and I would absolutely agree with you one hundred percent that every single thing in the in the human world in in the world so called is almost designed to push you away from that truth. It's um, by by design, but it, it's corrupt to its core. You know, I, I remember I could not wa- I could not listen to a piece of classical music with no words because it was too corrupt for my. It was like no, this is not clean enough. And so imagine when I switched on the TV and and I caught. I, I remember I caught a glimpse of a ten second advert, and I, I was like panicking to switch off the television because it was like just the raw sewage coming at my face at 100 miles an hour. So I absolutely appreciate what you're saying about, you know, not watching films. And I do watch films now. And, you know, it's I had these experiences when I was in my 20s. I had this weird experience where I could see auras and I could see all sorts of stuff. And I had to shut that down because otherwise I couldn't live in the world. I can still do it, but now I can choose it. This was that times a thousand. This was like, I, I got to shut down my... You know, I gotta keep that memory in my brain to 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 aim towards something. But I gotta put a shield up here because otherwise I can't live here. You know, I I need to do what I need to do. So absolutely, yeah, it's completely an inverse uh, world. Sorry to ramble on and uh, get a bit passionate about it. But, yeah, a couple of questions. Beyond that, the thing is that um, since Judaism is very is very. Um, a very dispersed religion. Yeah. It doesn't actually have a single dogma. There's no there's no pope, there's no yeah. There's no the canons of the Jewish church. You've got the Talmud. There's just a lot of um, so much interpretation there and there's like 12 books or something. Yes. <clears throat> now, there there are certain things that are as you could say dogma like you know observing the sabbath, the dietary laws, um yeah. like the, the the marriage ceremony. There are certain things that have been but it's more like a, an occlusion like um like like layers of orthodoxy, yeah. And I mean orthodoxy in the Chestertonian um, like yes, uh, yes, view, yeah. where it's um, like generational democracy. <laughs> Very good, a Chesterton. Uh, fan. Oh, I like you more and more. <laughs> I've, I've I've just recently listened to uh, to recordings of um, of orthodoxy and heretics. Oh. You can find them for free in uh, LibriVox. So it's made for some very good listening. I've, I've got the matches. books, but that's a good idea because I've been driving quite a lot recently, so I should get the audio, yeah. Anyway, um, I actually wanted to circle back a bit to um, to Genesis. Yes. <clears throat> to the whole thing to the whole thing about, um, call it, um, like basically the, the, these, fallen, these fallen ones messing with humanity. Yeah. So one of the things, um, if you look at what, if if you look at the sins that actually happen, that you know cause God to say, okay, it's time to wash the slate clean, yeah. and in and in a sense recreate the world. Yeah. Because if you think, if you go way back to like to the first to the first verses of, of Genesis, yes, you know, and it's uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. And the earth was well in the Hebrew tovavo, where the earth was chaos. And the spirit of God was floating above the waters. You basically have a return to that. Yeah. So the the flood is basically a recreation. And 
the thing is, there are two sins noted there. Ahalitz Hamas, or um, the land was full of theft, like brazen daylight theft, and all flesh has corrupted. We're pretty close those, to that. Those now. are the two. Hmm? We're pretty close to that now, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, Vox, Vox, you know, just can't, can't, can't stop banging the drum of, you know, how our current economy is based on nothing but debt. Yeah. Which, I mean, if, if, you, if you think about it, it basically means we're basically constantly stealing from each other to have money. Oh, yeah, I know that, yeah. I became aware of that in the early 90s when I left home by myself because I'd made some speculative deals in shares and I made enough money to just leave home. And I was about to patricide my dad, so it was just like, just get the hell out. And, um, you know, I lived by myself with my, left with my Indian girlfriend to South Africa where there was still apartheid. So just, you know, an interesting kind of life. <laughs> it's, it's just, it was actually legal for me to be with her physically, like, you know, in, in, in that world. So... It was, yeah, it was a pretty interesting times. But anyway, and um, I remember that I figured out how shares and all that stuff works. And I got out. I immediately got out. I said, no, 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 this, this stuff has got to collapse. It's a huge Ponzi scheme. This was like early 90s. And I thought this can't last more than possibly five years. And then it, 95, 96, 97, 2000. And I started to think maybe I was wrong, but you know, I, I can't see where I was wrong. And then 2008 came and it crashed. And then I realized, oh, I wasn't wrong. It's just, I didn't understand how stupid people are and that everybody would buy into it, including the people that know it's a Ponzi scheme. They keep buying into it. So it keeps, that makes the game last a lot longer than it should have. And then it crashed and they fixed it. And now the second crash, <laughs> when, when the second crash comes, that's going to be massive. And that can't be that far away. Now, I've allowed now for the human stupidity, because I was expecting about, you know, okay, 2014, 2015. But no, no, we've got to consider the human factor of idiocy. We're now in 2020. Can't be that far away. I reckon another couple of years at most, and then probably mm. between two and five I mean, years. If the, pattern, if the pattern repeats, then, you know, 2007, like 2027 instead of 2007 might be the beginning. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I, I would say between two to five years from now, but I'm a little bit paranoid, so 227 sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I intend to, in a few days, to simply to entirely cash out my Israeli equivalent of a four hundred one k. Oh, cool! Yeah, like uh, because because of the Corona, we can now um, we can basically cash out now without any penalties. Oh, good. And um, so I, don't, I mean, don't. It's, it's this this like this um, this sort of retirement fund has always just been an embezzlement it like, is, fund. It's absolutely it's a huge embezzlement. Um, don't, don't answer any questions you don't want to answer, especially about anything personal or whatever. But if I can ask, and feel free to tell me to bugger off, none of my business. Um, are you planning to maybe, you know, move or go to somewhere where there's a bit of land? Because I, I don't know. I've never been to Israel, but it's pretty small country surrounded by a lot of people that want to kill you, I think. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if you've got any plans or if you want to share is, I'm, because Because of my rather unusual history i think that i've been placed here for a very specific reason i don't know what the reason is maybe the reason I'm is in israel <laughs> maybe the reason is simply for there to be at least one true catholic in israel that's awesome that but is. um 
to, to give a sort of abbreviated history of my family, uh, my mother is actually German. I don't mean German as an Ashkenazi. I mean German as in a Teutonic woman. Yes. Okay. She's a meter 82 tall, blue eyes, curly golden hair, German. That is brilliant. <laughs> now, at age 19, she immigrated to the USA. She goes to California. She practices there as a, as a nurse. And that's where I'm born. Now, while this is happening, she converts to Judaism. And when I'm two or three years old, I'm circumcised and renamed to my Hebrew name, Akiva. And she immigrates to Israel, where she meets <coughs> my adoptive father, who is a, also an immigrant, but I mean, like uh, you'd say, ethnically Jewish as well as religiously, yeah. from South Africa. Oh, now I know you're meant for something. Every interesting person that has ever achieved anything in the history of the planet has been or come from or had some relationship to South Africa. I've noticed this for 20 years now. That's very interesting. Go on. Sorry to interrupt. My, my, father, my father is basically the son of a Cape Townian businessman. <laughs> now, the saga doesn't end here. So we, we, live here, we live here in Israel for a while. My father is a logistics officer in the, in the IDF. That's the Israeli Ooh. army. <laughs> oh, this gets better and better. <laughs> okay, he leaves the he leaves the military service, and then goes and basically does the same job in the in the Israeli police. And my father is a very very good like economist and uh, logistics person. He's he's highly you know he's very very dutiful and very precise. Yeah. And he's very good at what he does, and he he basically one handedly like um. You know, shaved, shaved billions off the like the Israeli um, uh, uh, police budget yeah. by just you know efficiencies and yes. proper accounting and all that. Yeah, and he receives none of the credit except for a small plaque. That's and at that point, I think something just broke as far as he's concerned. And he basically and he just lifted up the entire family except for me because at the time I was already twenty one years old. I was after my service. Yeah. And I was still in the uh, very much the Zionist frame of mind that Jews belong in Israel. Yeah. So my father takes all of my my mother and all of my siblings and moves to Australia. I don't know that that's a very good move. I think Australia is the most cucked country on the planet right now. It is very cucked, but it's very comfortable to live there, and it's where my grandparents moved to. You know, once the troubles in South Africa started. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. They, le they left uh, South Africa and went to Australia. Well, hopefully they're not in a huge city because that's where the worst of it is. But if they're out in the outback... They are. They are. They're in Sydney. Oh. Well, uh, I hope he buys a piece of land in the interior somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. But the thing is that circumstances have... Um, it's not circumstances. It's, it's very obviously providence. <clears throat> providence has in some very strange ways, placed me in Israel. This is awesome, man. Think of this. I could have grown as a, you know, as the child of a single mother in California. Yeah. In this day and age. Yeah. But that didn't happen. I grew up in a very conservative, family-oriented milieu in a country that's like 10, 15 years behind the degeneracy curve. Yeah. Like we're, 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 yeah, you we're, we're like a decade behind the Absolutely. USA when yeah. it comes to degeneracy. Well, at least I, I would, I would put you closer to 20 years behind, but yeah, maybe you're right. You, you live there. I don't. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the way, the way, what, 
I know that it will be a lot easier for me to live, you know, in America. Yeah. And I can do it. I actually yeah. have an American citizenship. Yeah, you're right. Because I was born there to, from a, to a naturalized citizen. Mind you, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, if you gave me a free ticket to go and live in America right now, oh, I don't know if I'd take it, to be honest. Go live in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, I wouldn't pick Wisconsin. I would pick somewhere in the Redneck Appalachian Mountains or like some little yeah. town in in Alabama, but fuck middle of nowhere. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah, and get nice fifty calibers and a, a nice little tall house. Then yeah, maybe. But, and teach uh, your children how to operate a mortar um, yeah. a mortar cannon. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but. Uh, so uh, that's really interesting. And again, please, you know, I, I'm a curious guy, so I will ask, but you, you absolutely feel free to just say, I'm not going to talk about whatever, right? Um, because I'm curious. I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying because it shows me the same level of zeal that I believe I have, although in different, uh, you know, we've got different roles or whatever. But what you're saying absolutely rings a true bell with me about proper catholicism and proper catholics um tend to be exactly what you're doing you know exactly what you're saying that sort of level of um in, i don't know what the right word conviction maybe but but it's not ego based conviction because it's not good for you it's uh, necessarily uh, on the worldly level but uh, if, if i wanted the easy path i yeah. could have been baptized by an orthodox church by now. there you go um so it's really interesting to me, but and, and I'm just wondering whether you have, you know, family, kids and so on, because I do, and I, I'm called to that sort of stuff, and my only concern really is for them to a certain extent. Um, so there is... The way my personality is built, I'm fairly certain that I'm meant to be a monk. That's very interesting, because that is actually starting to make a lot of sense. You do know that the Benedictine monks um, essentially saved Western civilization because in around the year 400, Christianity was absolutely, that was the real Dark Ages. Um, there was all sorts of fake popes. There was like Gnostics all over. Also the height of the Arian heresy. Yeah, it was. And by the way, the Arian heresy resulted in 97% of the bishops being heretics. There was only like 3% of them roughly, between 1% and 3% left. They were actually... Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Indeed. And what did St. Benedict do? He went off into the mountains and said, yep, we're just going to bugger off from the rest of the world and we're going to build monasteries. And everybody just thought, this guy is completely insane. I mean, the world's falling apart and he's just retreating into the forest and he's going to build a a monastery where there's nothing but rocks and dirt. Sure enough, um, his monasteries not only succeeded, but became the mainstay of Western civilization. And if you read the book by Rodney Stark called How the West Won, he gives a very mm -hmm. brief overview of how they did that from a, both of because they became self-sufficient very quickly. There are, there are a bunch of men that are working no, together. No, he, he mentioned it, he mentions it very like, like in passing, in he passing. mentions it in, uh, in uh, No Bearing False Witness. He does mention it a bit more in uh, New, uh, How the West Won, but he, I, I think there's whole books that could be written about that. And uh, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown mentions it in passing as well in one of her uh, un unauthorized TV things. But it, it, seems, it seems to be almost like an accepted fact for actual medievalists. It is. It is an accepted fact. They, they, it's, like, it's like something so obvious they don't even... They don't Question. even like linger on it. No, at all. Because, but, but, it, and, and they're right not to because it absolutely changed the economy of the whole West. 
These guys became self-sufficient so quickly and they started to produce. So that's why they were getting raided by the Vikings because monasteries mm -hmm. didn't have armies to defend them or whatever. And they kept getting raided so often that eventually the, the kings of the land, would, while Western civilization was starting to rebuild, these Vikings kept coming. And eventually the kings of France and Italy, whatever, they just said, listen, guys, stop fucking raiding us. We'll give you the land. We'll give you the land, but you look after the monks, you look after the monasteries, and, and stop raiding them. We'll just give it to you. And they sort of said, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. And then slowly, by living next to the monks, they became Christians. And I know I got some of those guys blood in me because they were all huge, blonde, blue-eyed barbarians. And they became, you know, like zealots. You know, they were, they were pirates. And then they became Christians. And I'm like, well, we're going to do the Catholic pirate thing now. So they went off to the Crusades. <laughs> What else are they going to do? So they, they, they're the guys that walked all the way to Jerusalem. And if you read um, the Crusades of Iron Man and Saints, it describes some of these guys. And there is one particular that I read in both the Crusades and I read it in Rodney Stark. And I, I read it in two or three different places from different sources. So it must be true. Then one of the, I forget which, I don't know if it was at Antioch or one of the parlays between the Muslims and the Christians and the Crusaders. They, they spoke under a white flag. And as Christians, they wouldn't. Um, the Muslims often um, ignored the white flag the and troops, killed yes. everybody. But but the Christians wouldn't do that. They would respect the white flag. And then when they met up, one of the Muslims was so arrogant and so rude and whatever that one of the the, the Crusaders that were there lost his temper, and because he couldn't harm any of the Muslims, he punched the the Muslim's horse with a mailed fist and killed his horse with one blow to the head. Now. Those were not small horses. So to punch a horse dead, these guys were huge. They were massive people. And and there are I have, I have quite a bit of German blood in me. <laughs> I'm a ninety-six. I'm like 120 kilos. Although I can probably lose about ten of those. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. You're more yeah. like, like Rasputin type monk in size. I mean, not in that nature. <laughs> so there you go. That's good. The thing, the thing is that as far as temperament goes. It's like one of the, my earliest memories is I want to be left alone. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's my temperament. That, that's a very like good. I uh, want to be alone. I, I read a book, a brilliant book that was called Messages from Michael, which is a bit probably heretic and a bit whatever. These people were getting messages from what they said was Michael, the supposed archangel. The archangel Michael. Who knows? But what I did the, find. The prince of God's armies. Yeah. You know. And, and they talk about little souls joining together and becoming a bigger soul. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of rubbish in there. But right. there is, they talk about ages of souls and how over, over time the souls get reincarnated and become older souls, younger souls. The thing is, you know, I'm pretty skeptical about everything. But if the model works, I use it until I find a better model. And they've got basically three pairs of souls that are like kings and warriors. So warriors are like the lower version of kings. Then there's like priests and I think it's called um, artisans. And then there is, oh no, sorry, priests and, oh, like basically like conmen. I don't remember the name or it. And then there's, <laughs> um, yeah, no, sorry. I think it's like these conmen guys and artisans. And then there's priests and slaves. 
what they call slaves are like serfs. That's like 80% of the population. And then there's one group of people by themselves that are scholars. And I think that probably suit, you know, if I were, if I use it just as a descriptive term, I think that that probably works. Um, so, yeah, and, and I have noticed that there are definite, it does seem to work as a model. It does seem to work. There are definitely people that are of a warrior class. You know, warriors and priests, they say, are about 20% of the population. And basically they're saying the priests inspire the warrior, you know, the priests and the kids. The priests priest start what the warriors have to finish. Exactly that, you know. And it, and it is. Um, no, actually, sorry, it's the conmen, and I forget what their proper name is, but the conmen start the war. Conmen and the kings. And the kings are kind of good guys, but just because of their, and there's very few of them, but because of their nature, kings and conmen start wars, and priests and warriors end up having to do the, the dealing work. with the aftermath that's it or yeah. dealing with the mess as it were yeah and and the slaves and serfs are the poor innocents that get mowed down <laughs> throughout the whole process you know and uh, but the, the interesting thing is that you know people of my caste if you call and I've, I've i saw this long before i read the book but basically the people that are like me can be quite unpleasant human beings until they get to a certain level of evolution because they can be quite violent and aggressive and what have you um, so it's it's a good model. I was going to quickly just read through because there's been a lot of yeah, I think there's, quite a there's lot some of questions. questions. Yeah. So there's actually one from uh, from Logos the dancer. Does okay. uh, Novus order baptism count? Uh, I mean, if you're at your deathbed, yes, it counts. Sorry. In any other circumstance, no. Go get a go get baptism from a real priest. We all need trivium. I don't know what trivium is. Don't they teach the trivium in American colleges anymore? I don't know what that is. Does it the trivium? That's um, I think it's something like uh, it's like the three the three subjects for a basic education. I think it's something like grammar. Oh right. It's like there's like a three things, and it starts with grammar. I don't remember the other two. Okay. Uh, the Pew and Bear says there's somebody on SG trying to bring it back. He also mentions that the Czech have also been Anglo-Saxonized. I once taught university, please forgive me. <laughs> That's Alicia, <laughs> a mistress of sound. What did you teach? Cactus bear, we've seen your comments once I was writing. Nothing much was told. Yeah, one thing that I hate that is not being taught at all is uh, logic. The, the basics, just the very basics of logic. Oh, and Alicia is saying, if I tell you what I taught, do not kill me. <laughs> Oh, and Deacon Blue has got an interesting text. It's not that Protestants can't see the forest for the trees. It's that they cut down the forest to focus on their favorite tree. <laughs> That's a very good take. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here was the question that you were saying. Is Judaic Gehenna Gehinnom related to Christian hell or purgatory or something different? I think you've answered that, but I'm not oh, sure. To degree, but uh, to sum it up, the Jewish perception of hell is basically... Um, that there's only that it's like it's almost inverted to what a Christian um, like to what Catholic uh, dogma is because Catholic dogma is basically that most of humanity is in hell. Yeah, um, pretty much. Now the thing, the the way the and on, and basically only Catholics even have a chance of getting into purgatory. Yeah, it's pretty so, grim I mean, outlook, but I think it's probably correct. <laughs> So I mean, if you, if you if you take the most optimistic um, sort of view of that interpretation, so fifty one percent of humanity, no, fifty one percent of baptized humans are in hell. Forty nine 
have a chance, 49% has a chance of getting into purgatory. Yeah. But that's actually very accurate. I didn't think of the that's, percentages, but you're right because they're saying that, that's that's if you're being optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. If you go to the uh, yeah. what is it called the the Prado the Prado um, yeah, yeah. distribution of eighty <laughs> twenty. Yeah, yeah. So eighty percent straight to hell. <laughs> yeah. Twenty percent get to purgatory. Yeah. Now twenty percent are uh, are heaven um, eligible. Yeah. And of those twenty percent, eighty percent purgatory, twenty percent hell. I mean, twenty percent heaven. Oh, I, so, I, I would um, think a lot less than twenty percent, because as far as I understand it, the only way to avoid purgatory is to live a perfectly unblemished life, which is, or to do all your penance here. Yeah, that's going to be pretty tough. Apparently, as as priests explain it, it's actually easier to do your penance here. Oh, if you're, that, if you're that in a state help. of grace, because I've read, I've been, I've been reading up a little bit on purgatory, and it was described by people that, for whatever reason, were shown or lived there for like a second or whatever. I think there was one particular saint I can't remember her name. I think it was in the little book of prophecies that I read, who was apparently put in purgatory for about a minute or whatever to to like give the message back. And when she came back and said, oh my God, it was the worst hell that I've ever lived. And it, I was only there for a second and it felt like a million years. And I was like, ooh, I've got thousands of years in there if I'm lucky. So I'm doomed. Yeah. So, um, but the, the thing is that, um, I mean, if, if, you, if you just interpret that into like, into what it actually means. So once you die, you're separated from your body, which according to, um, to Catholic theology is actually unnatural. The fact that our body and spirit get, dis get separated is not the order of things. Yeah. So that, that in itself is an offense against our nature yeah. and a great suffering. Yeah. That, that's actually part of purgatory as far as I understand it. That, that separation. Yeah. Yeah, because you're a disembodied spirit, really. It's quite grim, really, if you think about it that you're, way. Yes, you're, you're not your full self. Yeah. And then your unfull self is then subject to the unmitigated presence of God with all the imperfections that is that you that you, that you basically uh, made manifest through your life. I was, it's actually something I've been thinking of um, Call it about uh, time and, um, well, basically predestination and choice. Yes. So what I was thinking of is, if if you assume the premise that the human creature is eternal, not yeah. um, not not infinite but eternal. Yeah. Now, once you come into being at conception, you're eternal. Yeah. So what it what it as what I think at least it means. And since your um, spiritual essence, at least, is out of time, yeah. So what I'm thinking is that the way you behave here, yes, on like in this life, yeah, depending on how you interpret um, predestination, is either establishing your eternal nature or revealing it. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I'm, I I don't I don't and I don't know that if um, looking at things outside of time, if there's an actual difference between establishing or revealing a fact yeah, of your eternal nature. No, but I, I understood your point the way you meant it. I think because I yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. That you're absolutely, in some way you're revealing and in some way you're 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 establishing. I think both, and I think because we have free will, 
I don't think that's set in stone, like the, the Calvinists believe. Uh, you know, it, it's something that the, the only reason we have free will is because we have the image of God. Yeah. That's the only reason we can have free will. And a very interesting point is that, you know, I, th I believe that this whole process is to get us to a point where we can separate those who are with God and from those who are not. And after that, who knows what tasks there will be for us to do. You know, there, there could be a whole bunch of other things that we're meant to. Because what if, you want... If you, if you take a root, I mean, how does it go? Um, when, when Lucifer fell, yeah, he took a third of the angels with him. Yeah. And these angels are all part of the divine celestial hierarchy. Yeah. Every, every soul that manages to pass the line of purgatory and get into purgatory... It means that that soul has a job. Once it's done with purgation, yeah. you have a job in the celestial hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. It yes. might be making flowers grow. Yeah, but whatever. Yeah, sounds like an awesome job to me. In all honesty, absolutely. I, you know, I, I am well aware. You know, like despite my uh, supposed arrogance, I'm well aware of my uh, on the scheme of things where I fall is pretty close to the bottom of the ladder. There's no doubt in my mind about it, and I think. You know, if if that is my role, I, I'm pretty sure that my role tends to be tip of the spear. But that doesn't mean that you're an exalted creature. You know, at the end of the day, tip of the spear, the bits that break off first. And, and you know, it, it, it's a pretty grim, peasant-like sort of activity, ultimately. You're... you're, you're you're, you're the tip of the hammer or whatever. You know, you're, you're not very necessarily a very exalted being, but that, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm quite happy to be whatever I am, whatever I am. If, if I can just scrape in there by the skin of my teeth, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't matter what job it is. Clean the latrine pits. All right, it's fine. You know, I'm good with that. Um, I don't know that there's going to be latrine, latrine pits in pits. New Heaven. You yours. know what I mean. I mean, um, there's a question here, which is actually quite an interesting one. Do either of you know about the Sefer, a version of the Bible printed in the USA, goes back to original Hebrew names and includes removed books? I've heard of it, um, but I believe that there are bits on those books that are sort of Talmudic, if I'm not wrong, in, in the, I think the stuff in there about, you know, sex with little kids and stuff that is in the Talmud, that are bits of the Talmud anyway. Where is this question? Uh, it's by Bacon Eatmore, and it's about, I would say, uh, ah. towards... The know, Sefer. Sefer. I think it's oh, also Sefer. spelled with a Z. I've seen it spelled with a oh. Z, Sefer. Or Saphir. Okay, if it's Saphir, so it's Sapphire in English. Yeah. Basically, the, the blue rock. If it's Sefer with an S, it's just Hebrew for book or scroll. Okay. I've I've heard you talked about there was a guy I think on one of Owen's actually team. actually want to um extend his to extend a point here um, yeah the thing is we don't actually know what the original Hebrew of the Bible is oh because the original Hebrew was lost what we have um I think the the earliest Hebrew origin we have is what's called Ketel Haram Tzova which was found in the Cairo um, like repository of uh, discarded books. Yeah. And I think those date back to uh, 1000 AD. Um, like the, the, the best sort of, if you really want to go to an early translation, 
what you would want is a very good translation from the Septuagint back to Hebrew. And that would probably give you the most yeah. accurate Old Hebrew uh, translation of the Bible. So ju just now, say that again, because that, that's some of, to something. Go ahead. Just repeat that again, because I was trying to think about what Professor Rachel Fulton Brown said about that. Just say that again. So the best translation would probably be would be a retranslation from the Greek Septuagint yes. back into Hebrew. Right. You'd, you'd need some. You'd probably still use most of the Masoretic texts yes. for like the framework yeah. and for the like for for the like for, for, for the most of it. The Masoretic texts are probably okay, for but you want to rely yeah. on the Septuagint. Yes, that's very interesting because um, on one of the unauthorized things, that's where the professor was talking about how. The the original Latin Vulgate was a better translation of the Bible than um, the King. It's a much more literal translation. I'll yeah. say that much. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't flow, and you can no. you can see it. It's it's actually painful to read it the is, uh, it is. It's Psalms. Not, it's not as smooth. Like the yeah. Psalms in the in the uh, Durarames. Yeah, are painful. Even some of the passages are painful in the Durarames, and and that's why I keep a a, a Greek. Uh, interlinear, which gives me word for word, and um, and then the Aramaic one. Funnily enough, I, I I switch between those three. If there's a passage I really want to kind of get a bit understand a bit better, I read all three, and that seems to work for me. Now there was the question here: Woolly Ram, does Novus Orco baptism count, or should one seek to be baptized by valid priests? I heard the Kurgan speak on this and tend to agree with him. Yeah, my my take on is is like there's two types of Novus Orco priests. There's the ignorant, innocent, badly catechized, badly educated ones that believe they're priests, but they're actually not. And they probably mean well. And if you get baptized by one of those guys, technically the baptism is valid. But there's no difference between getting baptized by that guy and your friend Bob down the road. Um, they're basically giving you the same baptism. It's true what, um, what Willie Ram said that, you know, the... I see it slightly different because, you know, the, the priest um, will advocate that you should only get baptized by a proper priest if you can at all help it. In, if you're in mortal danger, then anybody can baptize you, including an atheist. My take on it is, um, if I if I was in, in Willie Ram's shoes, I'd probably go to my best friend Bob and say, hey, dude, just baptize me. Because the way I see it, I, you know, I don't, I don't, believe, I, my experience of God, what little bit of it I, I could see without catching fire on the spot. Um, he's not a lawyer and he knows your intent. And if my, if my intent is just to say, look, I need this. I didn't do this, by the way, when, when I wasn't baptized, I didn't do this myself, but that was because of another thing. I had a daughter that wasn't baptized and I've been thinking, no, I'm not going to do it until she gets baptized because otherwise, if they, you know, and I was wrestling with all this for, for years, right? I was wrestling with the idea about, well, if I'm not baptized in theory, I'm going to hell, but so is my daughter. So if my daughter's going to hell, then fuck it. I'd rather be in hell than, you know, with her. At least I'm there. But it doesn't work that way, you know? And, and that was, this is pre-embryonic thought, you know? This was very early days for me. And then when I figured out how it actually works, I got baptized. And she's still not baptized and whatever. But the point is... Um, that was really probably the only reason. Otherwise, I probably would have just gone down the river with a buddy and say, okay, baptize me, and then I'll get it done properly with the priest as well. That that would have been my take, because 
you you got to keep in mind where I come from, right? Um, I have been essentially, you know, if you're going to compare it to the old Christian, you know, crusaders or whatever, I've essentially been a mercenary, just a mercenary throughout my whole life. Just okay, hired gun. Okay, here we go, chop heads, do whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, God exists. I'm supposed to be a Christian. So what's a mercenary that that's all he's done is he's like, what's he going to do when he becomes a Catholic? Well, guess I'll be a crusading knight or one of those guys. You know, what else am I going to do? I'm not going to clean windows. So, all right, I'm now one of them. And when you're one of those guys, you, you know, there's a lot of stories about a lot. Of, back in those days, a lot of people would go on, you know, these mercenaries or, or kings or barons would go and do the most horrific shit. They would like, you know, raid towns, do all sorts of shit. And then when they were on the deathbed, and they would wait until they were on their deathbed, on purpose, they would go like, okay, I'm going to be Catholic now because all my sins are forgiven. You know, and I, I was kind of that idea for quite a while. You know, for about two years, I thought, I am, there's no way that I can be a Catholic. I used to think I'm, I'm too corrupted and, and, and broken to be any kind of a Catholic. So I better just carry on living the way I am. And then when I get right to the end, I'll say, oh, can I sneak in? And, you know, as I as I progressed in my reading and my learning about Catholicism, I realized, dude, you, you're not going to lawyer your way around this shit. You know, you, you might be a bad Catholic, but just bite the bullet and get on with it, you know. So, Better yeah. to be a bad Catholic than a heathen. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I would I put it out of um actually wanted to speak a bit about like my own conversion experience because I'd unlike yours, it. I was going to ask you actually, so that's perfect timing. Which which apparently was rather like a a bolt out of the blue. For me, it was a very long, protracted, somewhat torturous process. Makes sense. So um, it, it might it might sound a bit trite, but it, for me, I think my conversion honestly started with Gamergate. That's awesome. <laughs> That's brilliant. And That's to to, to, cool. some, to someone explain where I was at the time, I was honestly in a, in a pit of depression at the time. Because as far as I could see at the time, Western civilization is crumbling, and even our entertainment is being, um, well, eaten into by the same forces that are yeah. crumbling Western civilization down. Absolutely. And and for to to me, Gamergate was an immense like just like a, a shot of hope straight to the jugular vein. <laughs> yeah. And beyond that, I also started. I also met these annoying Christians of you know various denominations, various levels of piety. Very who annoying. Wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. Oh yeah. <laughs> I met plenty of those in Africa. Plenty. <laughs> and the thing is. There's like, there's, there's a whole bunch of Protestants among them. There's Orthodox, there's Catholics, there's Norse Ordo. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the, but the, the one common line to all of them is they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and how much I need to be saved from my sins. Yeah. It, and it took, it took me, I think it took me um, three or four years to, op to crack open the New Testament. <laughs> I'm kind of the same. <laughs> And the thing is, I can I think I can actually make a case for myself up until that point, up until Gamergate, I can think I can make the case that I was um call it um 
honestly innocent and uh, ignorant of the Catholic religion. Absolutely, me too. Absolutely, yes. I honestly think that if I would have died at age twenty-five, you would have been assumed into heaven anyway, because not into heaven, into limbo. Yeah, limbo. Yeah, sorry. It's and here's the thing: we were talking about this about how uh, modern Judaism ignores Christianity. It doesn't fight it. It doesn't um, like. It it doesn't make cases against it. It simply ignores it and make, basically um, infers and makes you think that um, it's not worth thinking about. Christianity is just not worth your attention. Yeah, it's quite. I had a vague notion that Christianity thinks that there's three gods and that the Messiah has already arrived. Yeah, that was what I understood about Christianity. <laughs> Yeah. So when I finally came to crack open the New Testament, I just went to the first book on Biblegate, which I think is the Gospel. Not, not I think I know it's the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. Now, in my first read through of the Gospel of Mark, I came out with two rather simple um, realizations. One, that stylistically, Mark is dramatically inferior to the Old Testament. The Old oh, Testament yeah. was written very, by scholars very... and scribes. I would agree, absolutely, yes. And it's 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 a literary creation, edited and ground to perfection through two thousand years of you know of literary, uh, like just forget three thousand four thousand years yeah. of of literary just crucible yeah. refinement. Yeah. And Mark, Mark is like. Yeah, you have you have a little kid. You, you know when you're like your little brother, or in your case, your little son is like, he like he meets this really cool guy, and he's just like has to tell you about him, and it's just like a series of events. That's brilliant. And then this happened, and then this happened, and everyone was like, "Wow, that's that's an awesome description." I love the Gospel of Mark precisely because it's at my level of reading. <laughs> Now I'm not I'm not anywhere near uh, Vox's level of literary snobbery. Oh no! But I, I, I am a biblical snob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I adore ancient Hebrew. But here's something that did shine out to me, like the light of a diamond from Mark. Yeah, and that's the reality of Jesus. I've read a lot of fiction in my life. I I, I also really like fantasy books. And all yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know how fiction is written. Yes. And Mark is not fiction. No, that's that's exactly you're absolutely right in what you said about a little kid. Mark is like a peasant chiseling it out with a crayon. He's, <laughs> he's basically saying, Jesus was here and he did this. Boom, full stop. Yeah. And and yeah. I, you're actually I, I never I never saw that because I'm not as familiar as you are obviously with the old testament, but um Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. Everything you're saying. But he, and this is once once I read it, it's almost like um, it's it's to some degree it was like a a road, not a road of Damascus, but the road on Emmaus moment, where Jesus comes and he starts explaining to you throughout the ages. Here are all the places where I was foretold. Yeah. Here are all the places I met you before I was incarnate. Well, you would know that having read the Old Testament a lot more than I have. And it was just, and even old Jewish commentaries. So yeah. there's like the expression that uh, Jesus says that if you've met me, you've met the Father. <clears throat> and the Jews, you know, the Jews react to this with rage. 
I saw if, the, if you're just, yeah. If you're, if you're just a Western reader, you don't understand why. But if you're a Jewish reader, you understand that the only uh, three people who were said to be images of each other are the three patriarchs, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Oh. They were said to be indistinguishable physically. They each one looked like each other. Oh. <clears throat> so talking, talking, saying that if you meet me, you meet my father, is to say I am a patriarch. Yeah, that's what it's. Do. It, yeah. he's, he's he's claiming he's claiming superiority to the patriarchs to Abraham. Yeah, yeah, that's that's basically why they nailed him to the cross, isn't it? In part. Yeah, and also when when he says I am, that's that's one of the ways God refers to Himself. Here's an interesting thing. Interesting thing about Hebrew: you cannot in Hebrew say I am. You can say I exist, <laughs> but you cannot say I am present tense. You have just explained something to me that has been a mystery mm. to me from the beginning of ever, ever having read the Bible and the words "I am that I am." Because in Hebrew, it's asher To me, that was like eh, this. Sounds like nonsense. So, so what? You know, just because the guy says he, what does that even mean? But now you've just explained that that is limited to the divine, is it? That's the thing. In Hebrew, is basically one of those like crisscross sentences, okay. which you can interpret as, as I will be that I am or I am that I will be. <laughs> so it encompasses all of time, essentially. Yes. It's that it's one it's just one of those things that Hebrew is so economical in its yeah. in its expression. Yeah. That's and cool. saying I am or about yourself, if you are not God, that is blasphemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. No, of course, yes. Because you're encompassing all of time. You you can't it cannot be done as a human being. No? Yeah. That's beautiful. Actually, here's a question. I, I hope you, if you know the answer to this, will blow my mind. Because um, I've been wondering, what is the origin of Hebrew? And in my back in my face on Mars days, I was thinking, this is not an easy to to represent characters. This is like almost like some super advanced alien computer type of writing. You. You know, it's like the letters have to be very precise and there's a very specific width to all these things and it's super, super complicated. Like, what's if you're curious about this, there's, there's a reason. If you, if you read through the Gospels, so you have the Pharisees and you have the scribes. Yeah. And they're, like, they're almost like separate castes. Yeah. And if you notice, you'll see that Jesus has a degree of patience and mercy towards the scribes that he does not have towards mm -hmm. the, the Pharisees. Yeah. The scribes are a very, are a different caste. Yeah. And if you look through what's basically the, uh, like the Jewish, not dogma, Jewish practice, as it were, a scribe, when he actually comes to sit down and write out a Torah, the scroll, as in an actual, you know, piece of leather with ink. Yeah. This is a highly pious act. It is, yeah. You're basically in a state of meditation. You have to think of nothing but what you're writing. He basically baptizes himself before and after he does each time he sits down to write. And it's a 
the, the letters themselves are what's called Kitab Ashuri, um, Assyrian script. Okay. Now, the actual, I don't actually know the origin of the script. So those very, those very elaborate, blocky letter, letters, yeah. you, you know what the, like, the uh, biblical Hebrew looks like? Yeah, they're, they're like all kind of fit almost in like a, a box of a certain size almost, isn't it? They're square, but they all have crowns and flanges. Yeah. And well, I, I know that from my Orthodox semi-friend that if, if when transcribing the Torah, one letter is cracked, the whole thing gets skipped. Basically. Yes. The entire, like, like a Torah um, scroll is made of like, um, is, ma is made of a sequence of um, leaves. Yeah. So if you make some mistake, the entire leaf is rolled up. Yeah. And it's buried, and it's treated like a human corpse. It's buried in the ground as if it were a human corpse. Oh, yeah. That's how that's how holy it's treated. Yeah. That's uh, sorry, I didn't I interrupt. That's, speak, speaking of treating a human corpse, that's another thing. Yeah. So there's the whole um, like why um, when when the when the Romans um, normally when they crucified someone, they'd leave the corpse there to rot. Yeah. As a basically as, as a message to everyone around. So why did they give the Jews a dispensation which allowed them to remove corpses before sundown? Yeah, I don't know. That's because the Jews would riot incessantly Oh, if a human body was di was disrespected in such a way. That's typically Roman. It'll just be very pragmatic. Okay, these guys are too much yeah. trouble. Just give them the body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And it's just... And that's the thing. It's, it's one of those things of... Um, like basically, the the first Israel, the human body is not something, is not an accident. No. It's not a mere mistake of the gods. Yeah. It's not you know Zeus's lightning fell in mud and humans sprang out of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now that's that I I, I didn't that's um so when you say Assyrian script, I mean do you know what the how I I had a weird you know I had a weird year in 2016 I was traveling all over I was working in Kazakhstan I was like and we went to the Kazakhstan museum which is a, an experience in itself because the whole museum is basically a shrine to the president it he truly is like the god emperor they've got like <laughs> I swear to God they've got like uh, school kid classes of school kids going to this museum to learn about their president and they took us on a tour because we were honored guests that were supposedly doing a we, we had to do a design for basically a mausoleum for when he eventually dies and we, were, right. we were part of like only six or seven companies that got invited to to do this and I was the representative because I was the only guy that spoke English Italian and basically can deal with whatever culture so we got taken to this thing by a very severe woman that was our tour guide and i swear i'm not making any of this up it would be like and here you know with, with absolute reverence you get taken through this weird it was a weird combination of a museum and disco because you, you went through these rooms that were like had all weird lights and there was one floor that was absolutely impressive it was probably like a football field size thing a bit thinner probably a bit longer of just perfectly clean white um surface and then it would start, and the whole bit started to have little bits of buildings. Right, it was a complete model scale of the whole city, 
and it would just come out of the ground and you you couldn't tell when it was closed that it wasn't a uniform piece of like material absolutely impressive but she would take us to these things where there's like a stand in glass and there's a pen inside the glass case and with deep reverence she would say and this is the pen that our president used to, to sign checks between the years 91 and 93 <laughs> I'm like you weren't gonna laugh <laughs> you know I was the most I was like I just took the guy next to me and we just like nodded to each other but you weren't gonna like make fun of it it was just that level of intensity and and that was it you'd go through that and here we have the medal this guy got a medal from pretty much every single president on the planet including the the fake pope at the vatican there's a there's a whole cabinet full of like honorary medals that he got from everyone and i'm gonna thinking how much nuclear weapons gold the, the shit they used to put in, in, in like cell phones, you know, whatever that metal is. There's this guy. Kind of but one of the rooms was, and, and I took photographs of the whole wall because it was so interesting, was uh, there was a whole huge wall dedicated to languages and the, the origin of the letter forms of different languages. And it was really weird because there was like, you know, you could understand, okay, Chinese, the kind of next door, but they had stuff from Europe, they had stuff from, you know, the the, the Americas, and it was, I, I have never, I mean, I've, I've been pretty interested in this stuff for decades. I saw letter shapes there and bits of writing that I have never come across ever before or since. And it was really, there was some progressions as well of how some letter forms started out and then how they eventually became in sort of modern modern writing. Um, and I was just wondering if you knew anything about that with respect to Hebrew uh, lettering. Like the origin of Hebrew lettering is honestly shrouded in basically mystery and legend. Because the Jewish legend has it that the original tablets were written in what you would see nowadays, what nowadays is called the Assyrian script. Yeah. And what they claim is that um, due to the sins of Israel during the period of the first temple, that this script was uh, forgotten and disappeared. And basically, they weren't worthy of it. Okay. And it was, it was taken away. <laughs> And once they once they went through exile and purification, and they returned to Israel, so they, they, this script was returned to them. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, we've got a question. The thing is that Jew Jewish, um, like Jewish legends, are always highly moral in their um, in their aspect. Like you, you're you're either worthy of something or yeah. you're not, and it is always depending on your obedience to God. You know, that, the funny thing is that that is an aspect of, inverted commas, Judaism, because I consider that an aspect of Christianity prior to Jesus, essentially. That's the thing. The thing is that Israel is a continuity. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I, I, I consider that aspect of it perfectly, 100% correct. Um, I don't see anything wrong with that, really. Well, that's an interesting thing about the name Israel. Because, I mean, you, you know when this name came into the world? No, I don't. Okay, so this is from the Old Testament. So when Jacob is returning 
from from Aram Harain, from well, basically from Babel, from Babel, yeah, to to Canaan. Yeah. He's taking his entire family with him, and by by this point, he has like four wives, and he has like I think ten children, and yeah. you know, massive herds. Yeah. He stays at he stays over on the one side of the river at night to just gather like the last few small things that he's left at the other one side of the river. Yeah. And he meets. And this is capitalized, the angel of the Lord. Which is the same, is that as the word, is the same sort of thing, or is that a different? No, Hashem is what like uh, Jews use nowadays to mean God, Okay. but they don't want to actually say his name. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that there is a line of thought that uh, the angel of the Lord yeah. is basically pre-incarnate Jesus. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, because it, 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 this... I think because he speaks with the authority of God. Yeah, we we, like the, the, uh, we sorry we refer. I think most Westerners refer to that as the Word, which is pre-incarnate Jesus, as you as you've put it, which was with God from the beginning, and the beginning was the Word. Yeah. You know, so on. And the, the thing is that the angel of the Lord, for example, like I think the first time we meet him is during the sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah. So. The moment yeah. Abraham is about to slaughter his kid, yeah. the angel of the Lord appears and says, and he's talking in God's own voice, as it were, for now I have seen that you fear me. Like, do not, do not harm the child, for now I have seen that you fear me and obey me. And Abraham obeys. Yeah. So he speaks with the authority of God, and God's prophet Abraham obeys. Anyway, now going back to Jacob, he wrestles with this angel of the Lord yeah. until morning. This angel of the Lord then wounds him in the thigh, but Jacob still won't let him go. And it's like the angels, the angel is basically let me go, the morning has come. Yeah. So then the angel, and this is something that happens quite a bit through it happens through uh, through, through Genesis quite a bit. And people are given new names. And this is where Jacob is called Israel. So oh. Jacob is the name that he's given because it's Yaakov. It's uh, the heel. Okay. He's, he comes out of the womb. He's, a tw he's the twin of Esau. And he comes out holding the heel of Esau. Right. And Yaakov, it's like Akiv is heel. And he's basically holding onto the heel of his brother. Yeah. As he comes out of the womb. Yeah. But now he's given a new name, Israel, which is Sarita Elohim Adam which is uh, you contended or you struggled with man and God, and you proved able. Oh, I did not know that. That is very, very interesting. So the thing is that to be an actual worshiper of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to actually follow them, means to be capable of contending with them and man. Wow. So do you, how do you see then, you know, the, the, um, the interpretation by many Christians, and I don't know how I think about it, that essentially any, anybody who accepts Jesus is now part of Israel or is considered Israel in that sense. How, how do you view that or, and how do the average Orthodox Jew view that obviously I'm sure the average Orthodox Jew thinks that we're talking nonsense, but 
Yes. To, to the average Orthodox Jew, to be part of Israel, you have to be Jewish. You need to pass through the whole um, conversion process. If you're a man, you need to be circumcised. Yeah. And you need to accept but basically the dogma of the one God. Yeah. Um, and you're basically then adopted into the nation. Um, if you're Christian, so you need to be baptized and accept the dogmas of the Catholic Church, etc. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's a lot much more to say beyond that. No, but it, you know, there's. I, I think it stems from mostly Protestant Americans. I don't know, but they're, they're basically saying, "Oh, because of Jesus' sacrifice." Can you hold that thought for a moment? Yeah, sure. I need to go let the whole this wine out. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll uh, I'll quickly read through and see if there's any questions. Uh, through enjoying Israel, God with oh, that's yeah, that makes sense. El, I know, I know that from the uh, Old Testament. Um, there was a question. Somebody saying, "Oh, you don't know who the?" I think it was Laurie saying, "I didn't catch the guest's name. His name is Woolly Ram. He's uh, he's my man in Israel. He's a true Catholic uh, that uh, became a Catholic, um, although he was raised Orthodox Jew, as he sort of explained later on." And while he's going to let all the wine out, if you've got any quick questions, let me just quickly scroll back, see if I've missed anything. Uh, I feel strong aversion towards speculation and things around that. I don't know what that was. I think we'd have probably uh, bully rammed it. Okay. Dances with logos. Found SSPV about an hour away. Circumstances almost to the point where I can go. I just ordered a mantilla. SSPV are still uh, not quite Catholics, though. Just so you know, they're like SSPX. They pretend, you know, they're like recognize and resist. So, but uh, I'm sure dancers with logos, you know about the, uh, um, what do you call it? The ecclesia.luxvera.org. There should be, I, I don't know where you live exactly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some proper Catholics not too far from you. Um, uh, Sylvester Rep. John Rampton, who's a bit of a dick, says Popeye's heresy. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. And then we've got Oh, Dances with Logos says, Wooly Ram, can you guys do this regularly? You're a wonderful teacher. He is a wonderful teacher, and uh, it's very interesting. It was the only one on the site. Why would SSPV be on the... Oh, possibly they're, they're, they're recognizing... Well, Dances with Logos, you should be... Not to the not too distant future, somebody should get in touch with you. I think that uh, possibly has um, some knowledge of uh, proper proper Catholic priest somewhere. But um, so yeah, I, I think there was a question from the the uh, the mistress of the Kurgan cult saying if we can do this regularly because you're a wonderful teacher, which I agree with. You are. So yeah, I'm sure. You know, maybe we can do this again whenever you, you, you're up to it. Um, and maybe we can pick a topic because obviously you're very much, certainly way ahead of me on anything Old Testament, 
Aramaic and 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 stuff like that. And you are obviously a hit with the immortals here. They're uh, they're all raving about you. So that's very good. Oh yeah, and Laurie M said Israel. That makes sense because El is one of the names of God. Yeah, I think. it's the generic name for this is a generic God. Yeah. Now Israel is actually it's not two names. It's one. It's uh, Israel or Sarah, hmm. which basically means. Um, it's like a derivative from uh, being minister or being a ruler. Oh, which actually brings me to something interesting. It's one. It's one of those many small things yes. that uh, led to my conversion. And one of them is this: um, the name Molech. Okay. Means sovereign. Yeah. So if you take the biblical admonition, "Do not sacrifice your children to the sovereign." If you take that through a Christian lens, yeah. Yeah. the meaning becomes apparent immediately. Yeah, very clear. Do not sacrifice your children to the sovereign of this world. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's just one of those things that just... Absolutely, yeah. You see, that, that, that's, the, that's why with my so-called Protestant friends that, that complain about my Aramaic Bible, and they go, oh, 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 how foolish, there's no such thing as an Aramaic Bible. And I was like, you're a moron. Um, Aramaic is the language that was spoken in <laughs> Israel. Exactly from the second from the second temple until its destruction. You know, it, it's it's absurd to me that people don't know this stuff. But then, you know, listening to that uh, the whole medieval uh, thing that um, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown has gotten unauthorized is really, I mean, there's parts that didn't particularly interest me or whatever, but it it was absolutely crucial in understanding just how much has been destroyed by protestantism because your average illiterate peasant of the 13th century could immediately see how the psalms related to mary and the psalms are from the old testament and you're sort of like you know you're like what does that have to do with mary and as a Protestant, again, they've got their mummy issues, and they're like, oh, Mary's nowhere in the Old Testament. What are you talking about? You know, but she, she shows you these links, and she literally showing you like 2% of what was known and what was there. You know, It's like, how did we let all that stuff go, honestly? I'll actually add on to that. Because there, there's a wisdom in what you'd call the uh, in orthodoxy, and I mean here just in the Chesterton again sense of it, of the uh, generational generational democracy. Yeah. So in Judaism, um, the Sabbath itself has been personified into a sort of divine queen. <laughs> that sounds strange. <laughs> and you know it sounds strange. But here's where, where it suddenly it for me at least it made a certain a sudden click. Yeah. Sunday is the day of the Lord. Saturday is the day of the lady. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Saturday is Mary's day. Yes. So even through the basically the the spiritual hijacking that my people underwent, yeah, they still managed to retain a sense that Saturday belongs to some sort of divine woman. Yeah. That that is astonishing. You see that that that's exactly why I have four or five or six different Bibles and why I I, I read through the bits because. And, and and I, you know, the more I look into it and the more I become aware of my own ignorance, because, you know, I, I would, you know, I often ask a, a friend of mine, like, we, we, we do this, like, what ifs, right? And one of them is like, what if you could learn three skills that you're like one of the top guys in the world about it? 
and I remember this friend of mine, we, we you know, we were talking about it, and and uh, and I said, you know, I'd really like to be really good at martial arts. And the guy looked at me like, dude, I, I've seen you like do shit that doesn't even look real. Like, what are you talking about? I said, and I was like, no, but I know how far I am from what I really mean, you know. And we're talking like that, and another one was drawing and a musical instrument. And then when we finished, he goes like, you know, he just quietly walking along, and he goes. I noticed that neither one of us said be really good at sex because we already got that one down, right? <laughs> but, but the thing is, you know, it, honestly, if I, because it changes with time, you know, what you want to be good at. And I would love to to be able to, you know, I just don't have the time, but to, to know the, the intricacies and the history of Hebrew and be able to read it and like understand it at its basic and Aramaic and Babylonian, you know, I've got like a slew of, ancient languages that i would love to be able to read you know but that's just only so much time in a life so but if you did know all those things i'm absolutely certain that if you could read egyptian hieroglyphs babylonian script uh, assyrian script hebrew and aramaic a lot of stuff would suddenly start to make a lot more sense and coalesce in, in a way that most people don't understand actually um Circling again back to Genesis. Yeah. In Genesis, there are two accounts of the creation of humanity. Actually, we have one account, the first account, the creation of humanity. And then you have the second account. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you have the second account, the creation of Adam and Eve. Yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. And there is, uh, there is also a thought about some of the humanity that was created was imperfect. I don't remember now if it was imperfect or was supposedly... I can't remember if it was perfect or imperfect, and then it got... Now, in, in the Genesis account, in either case, God... Um, okay, at least when it comes to humanity in general, God concludes when... And God saw that it was good. Yeah. So... Humanity as a whole is created, and God saw that it was good. But the thing is, then you move over to the second creation account. Yeah. It doesn't end with, and God saw that it was good. It ends with, God rests on the seventh day, yeah. and then comes the sin of Adam and Eve. Yes. So, humanity in general is created and is given the sort of seal of, and God saw that it was good. Yeah. Adam and Eve... <laughs> yes that's so that's what i was meant it was like one of but um what about i i think it comes from i believe jewish tradition that there was a woman before eve that's supposed to be Lilith. Is i don't know how much it's from jewish tradition and how much it's from the kabbalah oh, which is okay. as i can see and this is very much a this is very much an ignoramus's point of view because i never studied the kabbalah okay but as far as i can see the Kabbalah is a Gnostic infiltration of Judaic belief, or into 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 Judaic tradition. Right. Okay. It's, it's an it's an external, like a invasion. Right. As if you read the very beginning of I think it's Sefer Yitzirah, the book of creation. Yeah. It starts with an almost mathematical, no, geometric description of creation, where God begins as a point, a yeah. dimensionless point. Becomes a line, and then expands into creation. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very gnostic, and it's very, it almost, it not almost, it impersonalizes God. 
It's as if God is so um, disassociated from his creation that that it's basically that we live in a machine. That is a very as far as as Kabbalah is concerned. That is a very Gnostic. Because I, you know, before I became Christian, I read a whole. I truly have read pretty much, you know, from Buddhist to Hinduism to uh, I. I was I was looking and I was seeking in some way, but. Um, and definitely the thing about the Gnostic stuff is that intellectually the Gnostic stuff can be quite clever and quite captivating and quite interesting. But without fail, despite all of that, and I am a pretty intellectual sort of guy to a certain degree, there was always an element of it that just something inside of me is like, but this stuff is dead. It's it's dead. It has no life. It's It's like a little robot pretending to be a human sort of thing. And the thing is, I mean, to speak as a gamer, yeah, there's actually a series of games made in Japan. They're called either the Persona series or the um, I forget the the other name. They have a different name, but they're they're known as the Persona series here in the West. Yeah, and they're all set in a world that is both very Gnostic and also very uh, Jungian, as in you know the whole Jungian archetypes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Now, as an interpretation of actual living and existence, it's dysfunctional. Extremely yeah. dysfunctional. Yeah. But as a system for an RPG, as a magic system for a role-playing game, oh, it's brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be because it's yeah, it's I, I can see that that would because it's so it's like a computer, really, isn't it? You've got all your yeah. parts and they fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Um, there was a friend of mine that was play, is it called Destiny? I don't know. I, I haven't played a game. On no, Des- Destiny is a shooter. Yeah, it is a shooter. Sort of high science fiction, science fiction uh, but concept. But is, isn't there some hidden Christian sort of underlying story there? I think I don't know. That's what I, I've never played it, so I have no idea. Sort of. Because okay. I haven't played it either because it's a bad game. So um, I mean, I, I've actually played some of Destiny Two. Okay. And it's it's actually one of those really depressing sort of games to play because oh. you play it. And you can feel that there used to be an excellent game here. Yeah. And then someone, some asshole, came over and made a second pass over it and made it a bad game. I hate that. I hate when they just destroy the plot and all that, you know, the intricacies. It's not the the story that was, it's the gameplay, the actual gameplay. It's like, you can see how they retarded the AI of your opponents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see how they simplified the mechanics. Oh. It's like um, yeah, I know it's what just you mean. <laughs> it, it's the and the instupidation that is going on all over yes. the world, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's like I, I mean I can see that you know like we're starting to homeschool now, so and my wife is quite worried about it because it's like oh, but I'm not clever enough to do all this. I don't know enough. Just like listen, all you have to do is. All we have to do, not you know, it's not just on her. As long as our kids learn to read, write, do maths, they're gonna win. Because the next, yeah. the only thing I'm gonna focus on teaching them is learn how to think and learn how to figure shit out by yourself. What? Once you can read, write, and do maths, you got it. You know, then it's just training. Then it's just like, what can you do? What can't you do? I don't know what you can do. Check it out. Try it. 
and I've found this with my uh, my 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 um, stepbrother. I've got a, a half brother. When he was a little kid, um, you know, I was building computers and doing stuff, and I, I dropped a, um, a screw, one of the tiny screws. We were putting together motherboards and stuff, and I dropped one of those in a place, you know, where like even shaking the case, I just couldn't get it out. It was like my hands are too big, and he was there, and I said, "Hey, can you get this out for me?" And he was like, "How?" I said, "I don't know. You figure it out." And I swear to God, at that moment in time, I didn't know how he would what he would come up with but i thought i bet that he can because I, I i could feel i'm just stuck in my you know try to put my hand in it try to tip it and i wasn't going anywhere and i don't remember exactly what he did but i think he tipped it so that it would fall to a certain place which i still couldn't get to and then he used the pen and, and he got his little hand in it and he got it out and it, it took him like 30 seconds and i've been struggling with this thing for like 20 minutes you know <laughs> so the, the the one of the biggest things I learned is like never put a limitation on what you think can be done because you don't know that you know I'm I'm thinking and I think it's a Jewish thing that it says like you know there are seven times seventy ways of doing something and then there's there's more times beyond that sort of thing you know so it's like yeah it's it's something um, I honestly it's something I don't know. But I do wonder, like, if you actually take someone who has, like, a 90 to 105 IQ, yeah. right? Or, like, the, the normal range of IQ. Yeah. But give him a good education and a good house. Yeah. I personally think that he would be a lot more functional than any of, you know, the 120-plus geniuses oh, uh, that wonder about it. Without a shadow of a doubt. One thing that Vox said, um, and he verbalized <clears throat> it, but I, 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 I lived through this without actually putting it into words for myself. And he said, you know, I don't have a problem with a, with a 100 IQ guy. And, and it's true. I never do. Because it's quite honestly for the average person to try and understand what I'm talking about. It's like the average person when they come across a Downs person. Have you ever <clears throat> had a problem with a Downs person? You don't. And, and the dance person is not a problem to you. They've got maybe some little odd behaviors or whatever, but they believe you, they trust you, and, you know, they, they might not know how to tie their shoelaces, but they know that you do, and they know that they can't do it, and they don't even question actually, it. Actually, I actually have some stories about this, but... You know, they don't question it. Yeah, don't, don't forget them, because I want to hear them, but, you know, they don't question it. They're sort of like, oh, he can do magic shit, like tie shoelaces, that I, I don't know how to do that, but that's cool. And, and they just go with it. And essentially, you know, when you're a 150 plus IQ to a 100 IQ, you know, that and a dog, there's not a huge bunch of difference. I mean, and, and the guy just gets on with it. The 100 IQ guy, I've never had a problem with. The people that I invariably have a massive issues are the 120 to 130, 135, those guys. Because they're used to being the smartest person in the room most times. They're not smart enough to recognize when... It's generally very difficult when you you have a high IQ to recognize somebody with a higher IQ because it doesn't happen often. Um, I have I have been able to do that. I've I've met people that are a lot smarter than me, like a you know a good deviation if not more than me. And it took me a while at first because part of their behavior was not as assertive as mine, and I sort of dismissed them. And then when I started talking with them, I realized no, this guy's actually smarter than I am. He he actually is being very polite in trying to sort of not 
you know, he didn't understand that I don't care. You can offend me. It's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what you're saying. I'm not looking at how I feel about it. But he didn't know that. And he was being very careful in trying to lead me down a certain path. And I thought, dude, you could have done this in five minutes instead of 25 minutes. You know, just say what you mean. It's not going to upset me or whatever. But he was conflict avoidant, you know. Um, but the thing is, the 120 to 130 IQ guy, he can't recognize that you're smarter than him. On a personal level, he might think, yeah, he's okay. He gets me, so he's cool. But then I can do shit that he doesn't understand how I do it. And in a work environment specifically, because I've come across this several times, you're like, uh, okay, you know, I'm usually looking after money or whatever. And I was like, okay, so this is how you do it. And that's how we make 8%. And the guy's looking at the same spreadsheet as me and he can't follow it. And he doesn't know how I've done it. And to me, it's like, I don't understand what you don't understand, dude. Because to me, this is like 2 plus 2 plus 2, 6. And, and I'll walk you through it. It's like, okay, so there's this, this percentage. This is this package. We've got that extra bit over there. So we can add this to here. But then we know that we don't really need to do that part if we can do this bit first. So that saves us another 2%. And, you know, here we get the 10%. And he just glazes over and yeah. thinks I'm lying to him. A month passes. Hey, we got 10% in the bank. And he's like, no, but the guy was lying to me. That's what's stuck in his head because he couldn't get it. And now we got 10% in the bank. How did he do it? Oh, he, is he getting bribed somewhere and getting extra money? <laughs> you know, they will come up with all sorts of fantastic bullshit. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, man? I've just shown it to you three times. I'll show it to you a fourth. I can put colors on it if that helps you. But they, they, it might. they can't follow it. And their baseline assumption, when a human being is met with the unknown that they can't explain to themselves, the basic instinct is to feel fear. There are very few people that come up with an unknown that outperforms them, that they don't understand, and sort of go, this is cool shit, I want to learn this. Nine people out at of least ten. least fascination to me, at least. It, it is to me, too. I mean, like, I did karate for like 30 years. And then I met one of these Russians that I literally could not put my hand on. And he could fold me into a pretzel, beat me up. He could literally do whatever I wanted with me. And I'm like, shit, I've had him fist fights. I've had knife fights. I've, I've had guns pulled on me. I've done all this shit. I can't even touch this guy. Do you know how long it took me to go like, forget everything that I've ever done before, just start training with this guy? A minute. It was, it was like one second. It was like, well, this guy can kick my ass all over the room. All right. I want to learn, dude. That's how long it took me. But you know how many people I've seen that were in my same position, maybe had trained for like, not even as long as I had. I'd, I'd li literally trained for a couple of decades before I met one of these guys from when I was a little kid. I met people that uh, trained for five, six, seven years. Then they came to my class and they were like, oh, I don't believe all your shit. Can we fight? I'm like, well, if you really want to, but one of us is going to get hurt because I don't know who you are. Maybe you want to try something a bit easier first. And, you know, some guys did, some guys didn't, whatever. The hard-headed ones learned faster because, oh, okay, yep, that works. You know, I had a guy who was a, a bodyguard and a, and a bouncer, and he was 125, 130 kilos, not a millimeter of fat on him. This was pure muscle. And when I came in, I was the instructor, right? I was teaching. And he came in and he goes, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? And I was like, you know, by that time, I'd trained in the Russian system enough that my ego had pretty much gone out the window. I didn't care. 
But there was still a little hint of it, you know, from my karate days. I was like, oh, well, I guess you and I are training together for this class, so we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise you, and I wasn't going hard at him because I actually liked him. You know, he was, he, I, I just at, at a human level, I thought, okay, he's, he's just pushing, you know, he just wants to see what's going on. But he was pretty arrogant but polite at the same time. I don't know how to explain. So just training with him a little bit and, and, um, we're just tapping each other, you know, like, uh, you know, he's 120 kilos. I'm like, he's got like, you know, 40, 30, 40 kilos on me, but it's fine. You know, when he taps me, I just take it and then I tap him and five minutes in, he goes, I'm very sorry. He just stops, took a step back and he wasn't showing any pain or, you know, he was pretty good about it. Very martial artist. Like if you're training martial arts, you don't show when you're hurt because then the guy is going to hit you there again. Right. <laughs> he didn't crack he didn't show anything but he took a step back said i am very sorry i was very arrogant please can you go a little bit lighter because i am fucking broken everywhere right now and i'm not sure if my ribs are cracked or not and i honestly looked at him and i said dude i'm i'm sorry i i really i wasn't trying to hurt you i promise you and he goes fucking hell the thing the scary thing is i believe you I know you're not lying. <laughs> and I, honest to God, well, on this, on this, I will say, I'm not a very physical person, so yeah. I basically went through this person, this um, process of humiliation yeah. through Vox. Oh, I don't think that if I would have encountered you before Vox, yeah, that I would have um, like seen what you mean and understood you. Oh yeah, you would have because I'm, of an I'm basically, story. I'm basically the uh, like. The, the borderline midwit. I'm like 132 <laughs> IQ. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, I'm one of those uneven, like 132 IQs. Yeah. Vox so is I'm uneven. Like really high. Vox I'm like really high in abstraction and yeah. pattern recognition. Yeah. But above average in most everything else. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very good at like getting a sense of things, but I'm not good at the whole nitty gritty, like, Breaking it apart. Oh, Vox is and like Vox, yeah, he... Vox is like he will take an idea or a concept and just like decompose it to its components and just arrange them by whatever order he feels like. Yeah. You know the funny thing is that Vox is uh, I you know his IQ is one fifty he tells me, um, but on, but on a very a, one, he is a very uneven one fifty. Absolutely, he's on on strategic stuff. I think he's one sixty five, one seventy. I, I I don't know. He's way above where I'm at. But then on things like spatial logic, he's absolutely retarded. He literally. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, he'll tell you this himself. He, you his know, wife, so, apparently his wife needs to help him when he's packing the like stuff into the car. <laughs> I've been at his house when they were doing stuff, and she's like. Here, just go away. And he goes, he just, just walked up. It was, he wasn't even, he was just like, yeah, no, there's no point in me doing that stuff. I, I don't think that she allows him to use power tools <laughs> because it would just be a deadly, a deadly thing, you know? Well, well for me, my, my spatial intelligence is, is high. You know, I, I can, I managed to park a car in Paris where like, we went there for training, <laughs> and the guys, the the guy that drove most of the way there, he's a driver. He that's his job. And he looked, and I said, no, 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 park there. And it was super full, you know. I was like, Giuseppe, we can't fit in there. I said, get out of the car. I'll, I'll park it there. He goes, dude, it's my friend's car. I said, don't worry, it's fine. I'm not gonna damage the car. I'll park there. 
I, I still don't know how I did it, but basically there was not even an inch from the front or the back, and I managed to fit it in there. I did touch the bumpers, but just touched, and you know, and then like, and we got it in. And he was like, after we finished, the, the, the guy that drove there, he like looked and he looked and he went around and he looked again. He said, I don't know how the fuck you did this. I don't think this is possible. I don't know how you did this. You just warped reality. But, you know, I'm very good at that stuff. But then with the strategy, like Vox will do things that I'm thinking, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And then I see his process way down the line, you know, six months later. But we, we had this conversation on the phone years ago where I told him, look, you're a better strategist than I am, but I think your tactics kind of suck sometimes. And, and he said, I'm not a good tactician. I don't think I'm a particularly good tactician. I'm a good strategist. And I'm like, yeah, but dude, in my head, I'm like, but how can you be a good strategist and not worry about the tactics on the way there? And he's like, because it doesn't matter. And I understood then, like, oh, he's cleverer than I am in this because it doesn't matter. He's allowed the parameters of failure in his computation anyways. In my brain, I'm like, I don't know how to get there unless I can win the next 17 battles. Then I can see how I can get there. Well, he's like, nah, it doesn't matter. As long as I win nine, I'm fine. You know, And it doesn't matter which nine. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why he has things like LibriVox and uh, the whole his whole comics resurrection thing, which oh, awesome. I, I, at first, you're like, I, I was like looking at it, and I'm like, what the hell? Why, why is he? Oh, why is no. he going to comics? I, I read comics kid. when I was a kid, so I knew exactly that he's spot on. He he hit a fundamental key of the of the culture war here. The, the thing is, to me, it finally sort of crystallized with the uh, the one about the vampires, mm -hmm. which has beautiful art. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the story is intriguing. And I'm like, okay, I can, it's like, but it took him two years to get to this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Vox is an extremely patient man. And he told me that right at the beginning when we first, we hadn't even met yet. And, um, and more recently I said to him, dude, I, you know, I, I respect patience and I've only learned to do that quite recently because for many years, it's one of like one of the guys I work with at work. He's printed a, a little thing that he's put on the wall, which he called Giuseppisms. And one of them is patience is an excuse for the witless, which is one of my sayings. Um, and, I, I, you know, and most of the times, that's true. Patience is an excuse for the witless. But um, I have learned that there is absolutely a, a place for patience. And Vox is... He truly is a bit of an Aztec. You know, those guys will just sit there and watch you, like, die from thirst. You know, it takes them four days. <laughs> they want to truly enjoy your suffering. And, and he's kind of, he's got, you can see there's a little bit of Aztec in there, you know. But uh, it's, it's actually coming out now that he's aging. Oh, yeah. You can see, like, the, like the, the puppy fat is, like, melting away. And it's just, like, <laughs> the big nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the big nose and the like the prominent like cheekbones. <laughs> yeah. It's like and, and that ridge and is like Yeah. Just perceiving you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um he, Fox is hilarious. I mean in uh he's so dry. He, his, his, his sense of humor is so it's, it's, thin. It it's is like it, most people miss it completely, but um he, but he, he 
it's not so much nowadays, but um, during Gamergate at least, yeah. his humor was a lot more um, out there. Yeah. But it was always a very thin layer. It, it and it's is, just very observational and dry, and it's just it like super dry and rarefied. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Um, and and, and I, I can only I can only notice it, and I, I just like notice like hints of it. It's like a oh, there's sometimes reading Vox's blog occasionally makes me literally burst out laughing for like five minutes because I, I sort of understand how his brain works, and you know we, we've kind of met several times. I, I know his family, whatever, and it. it I have a, I think I've got a pretty good grasp of how he thinks, in certain respects. In certain respects, he might as well be an alien. But um, you know, one thing that took me a while to, and it took me a while considering that I'm like that myself. But Vox has got almost an autistic level of disregard for um, normal human interactions of what people would expect in his writing or expect to read or. You know, and he's just basically saying, well, you know, he'll write something that the average person reading it goes, oh, my God, this guy is a misogynist, evil, racist pig. And it's what? And in Vox's brain, he's like, but no, I'm just making an observation based on that fact, that concept and this point. And he, it's true. You know, what, what he's writing is not wrong, but he has zero regard for the, the human element of it. So... Yeah. And, and I don't I'll think put, it does it. I'll put this in a more personal point from my boy's perspective, at least, as yeah. a Jew. Yeah. It's like his whole writing about how, um, like how Jews behave. Yeah. And it's like, to me, to me, there's also a great deal of dissonance because I live in Israel. Yeah. And I deal a lot with Israelis. Yes. But they're a different kind of Jews. Like, because I've met Israelis and I've met Jews outside of Israel, and they're very different people. Yeah. And but the thing is, it's like, when Vox or sometimes also a big bear is like yeah. talking about the Jews, yeah. it took me quite a while to sort of disassociate the Jews yeah. from Israelis. But the thing is, once you understand that Vox is like, when it comes to the Jews, at least he's talking about like the diaspora elite. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he is. That's who he's talking about when he says the Jews. Yeah. And when, when a big bear is talking about the Jews, he's talking about like the entertainment Mughals. Yeah. And their and their managers and their like their sub unions. Absolutely, yes. That's who he's talking about. Yeah. Once you understand that and you understand that sort of strata, and it's like even an Israeli, it's like, yeah, I know these fuckers. Yeah. yeah. These are the fuckers right here in Israel <laughs> who are, have have their boot on my neck. Yeah. And are are siphoning six percent of my income, excluding you know income tax and all the other bullshit. Yeah. They're siphoning an extra six percent every month into a retirement fund, which is basically their embezzlement slush fund. Yeah. Well, it's the same like when, you know, that's why I say I'm, I'm half-jokingly, I'm 90% seriously. Um, I'm not Italian, I'm Venetian. And <laughs> that's because... On that account, yeah. I'm not Israeli, I'm a Jerusalemite. There you go. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, because your average Italian is, I call them WAPs, you know, they're just this random... There's no such thing as an average Italian, anyways. You know, they're all different, and they're all different regions and what have you. But the thing is, you know, when I say I'm Venetian, it's because well, all the rest of the Italians are inferior, of course. And <laughs> and when it comes to Venetians, I don't, you know, even the Venetians are a bit of a pain in the ass. And except, you know, my three neighbors, and and even those two of those three guys, you know, are not really, you know, 
<laughs> so it's uh yeah I, I get what you mean i mean like what you know i've the, never the been the originality offended. thing it's something i was thinking of it's it's not a very um articulated thought yeah but it was like is there any evil invented in human society that did not come from a port city hmm. that is very interesting specifically specifically cities built on a delta of like a draining delta that is very interesting but mind you a lot of cities were think? because that's that's where most sort of you know there were good good places to build a town or a city i suppose yeah but here, here's the thing it's like you get a whole bunch of disassociated people yeah. in one city yeah and on the one hand you get a lot of wealth and on the other hand you always get a lot of degeneracy. That's very true. But I, like I think London. maybe mm -hmm. that's a function of prosperity. Because the more prosperous the more prosperous a place becomes, the more degenerate it becomes. But then again, I've lived in Gaborone, which is the capital of Botswana, which is a landlocked country. And I often thought that that or as the mother of one of my friends used to say, <laughs> very politically incorrect, um, Africa is the asshole of the world, and Gaborone is 10 foot up it. <laughs> so, it, was, um, it was definitely a little portal to hell in terms of the average person being a thieving, lying, you know, most people you couldn't rely on. But then again... You know, there's a lot of poverty there, so I never begrudge. It, it's like I said, you know, yeah, in Africa, a guy might shoot shoot you to kill you to steal your shoes, but he really needs those shoes, man. You know, so you can kind of see where he's coming from, sort of thing. But it's not, it's not, it's not the guy. It's like it's not the guy who steals from you. It's like if someone steals, I work in a shop. I work in a 24-hour store. Ooh. So if I ever caught someone who, who buys, uh, who not buys, who steals, yeah. uh, let's say bread and milk, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, dude, you could have just asked me for yeah. it. Yeah. I'd have given it to you on like on my account. Just yeah. Yeah. go. But it's like someone tries to steal some booze. Yeah, that's when like my, the blood goes up to my head. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'll tell you a funny story. Then this happened to me years ago when I was um, coming home from training. And uh, there was a 24-hour um, place that we, it was actually a petrol station, but there was a little, like, you know, general store that was also there. It's like 24-hour place. And as I'm walking in, I see this kid. You know, couldn't have been older than I don't know. Maybe he was 22. Maybe he was 16. Who knows? You know, one of those. Quite a big kid, anyway. And I see him like just he just got in there and he just like grabbed a whole bunch of wine bottles and like ran out. And he basically ran into me. You know. And so I just put my hand out. I like grabbed him by the shoulder and like turned him around and I said, "Just go put them back," you know. <laughs> and he, he, he panicked and he he dropped all the bottles. But we were just literally outside the door, so there was a big carpet, you know, like so they didn't break. They all dropped there. And then like he held on to one of them, and he like and I, I I was just standing there. I was like, you know, he's panicking. Just let him. And he like lifted this by the you know kind of like that, like a, like he's gonna whack me with it. And he lifted it up just like he's going to hit me on the head. I didn't even raise my arms. I said, kid, you better fucking kill me because otherwise that bottle is going straight up your ass. And he looked at me. He wasn't stupid because he looked at me and he thought, fuck, and he ran, you know. 
And, and I, I started laughing, really. I was kind of laughing because I thought, oh, you know, at least he's not completely stupid. I didn't have to bang him in the head. And he ran about 50 meters and then he stopped and he turned around and he started swearing my mother, my father, my... And I was like, really? I thought, you know what? And I started, before my brain active, I started chasing him. And I started off so quick that I actually pulled a muscle in my leg because I, I just, I thought, fuck him, now I'm going to teach him a lesson. And when he saw me run, I, that guy broke the, you know, the, whatever the <laughs> land speed record was. He went across four-lane highway in like two seconds flat in the middle of the night with cars. And I managed to cross as well. But by the time I got to the other side, he was gone. And I thought, well, fucking hell. And, and walking back, I'm laughing at myself because now I've pulled the muscle in my leg. So I've injured myself by myself, trying to chase a stupid kid just because he was swearing at me. And I'm, I'm, I'm basically pissing myself, laughing at myself. I go back in and I, I pick up the bottles. I put them down. And I said, look, you got away with one bottle, you know. And the guy goes, ah, that guy's here every week. And I'm like, fucking hell, not even a thank you. So, okay, never mind. And, and then walking home, I remembered that day I had achieved what is still the record in the whole of the construction industry of any of the places I've worked, and I've worked pretty much everywhere. In terms of percentage, it's the biggest percentage profit that ever made on any single variation. And it was this. And it was, it was a hotel that had like seven, they only had on the drawings seven um, cutouts in the ceiling for like openings and shit. Turns out you needed about 300. So it's a variation. But we made a deal with the guy who was doing the ceilings and we paid him an extra thousand pounds. But the variation, by the time I finished it and we all got paid it, was worth 77,000 pounds. So I made uh, 77 times what we paid for it. That's what we got paid. And I was walking home with my pulled muscle thinking, fucking hell, that guy stole a five pound bottle of wine. And that makes him a criminal. I stole 76 grand and that makes me a valued employee. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck? You know, how does this planet work? You know, it's just... <laughs> the funny thing is, two months later, I met the guy walking down the street. I'm now in my suit and tie instead of my tracks, pants or whatever. And he's just walking along. And I thought, oh, that's that kid. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want him to run off. So when he gets, when we're right next to each other, I said, hi, did you enjoy the wine? The guy looks at me and he's like, and then I saw like fear in his eyes for like about a second. I said, relax, relax, don't run. You got away with it. It's all fine. Just, just talking now, you know? And he's like, oh, you're not pissed off. I'm like, nah, it's cool. You got away. You, you did your job as a thief, you know? But tell me, man, like, why do you steal booze? Like, why do you do that? He's like. I've never done anything else, but why don't you get a job? You're fit, you're healthy, you've got legs, you've got arms. So, yeah, but I've never done a work. My parents are not. So, my fuck, just go to the job center. Just be a laborer, dude. I'll tell you where you can go and work. Just go and ask. They'll give you a job. So I could be a painter, right? I could paint a wall. Like, yeah, you could paint a wall. You really think so? I said, fuck, dude, all you need to do is dip the brush and go up and down. I work with these fuckers. I know, <laughs> you know, they don't know anything more than you do. So... Yeah, okay, I'll do that, you know. I don't know, I hope he did, but it was such a funny, you know, I was, I don't know. Speaking about um, the whole thing, yeah. okay, so a few years ago, I worked security, and uh, I was working security in a construction site. Now, my job was not to secure the construction site. 
my job was to secure the uh, materials being used to build the hotel. Yep. From the employees building it. Yep. Because this was a like super deluxe, like, you know, high scale um, sort of place being built you know, like right on the border between downtown Jerusalem and the old city. Yeah. It's, it's the Mamila Hotel. It's like one of these, like, it's like a four star hotel and it's like, you know, like just one night in this place is like you have to rent your kidney and, you know, sign your soul to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sort of yeah, those are the hotels I've built, by the way. Yeah. So I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> now, here's the thing. It's like, I'm just, I'm basically just a guy standing there in a sort of half constructed hotel. And these men and all these guys are Arabs, part Muslim, part Christian Arabs. That must have been comfortable like, for you. <laughs> here's the thing. I'm like, I'm like head and, head and shoulders taller than all of them. Yeah. So physically speaking, I've never been challenged. Yeah. And I actually have no martial art training. <laughs> I don't actually know how to fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. In an actual fight, if you know what you're doing, you can probably take me. <laughs> I'm just big and strong. Yeah. And I can take a lot of, and I can take a beat. Yeah. But that's it. And here's the thing, I'm just like, I'm just watching these guys working and building and everything. And this one guy catches my eye. He's this really fat Christian Arab. Yeah. And I mean fat like the guy who, he looks like um, if you take his like legs and, and rib and you pull them apart and you put like a whole sack of, uh, of wheat and just drape it down <laughs> between his rib cage and, and, uh, and uh, pelvis. Yeah. That's what he looks like. <laughs> but this guy is a master at his job. Yeah. And all he does is do the, um, how do you call it, the adhesive between the actual concrete and the drywall. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a plastering, but um, it's not a yeah. plastering. It, it's the, the, to mask over the joints, basically, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He does that, and he's patient, he's calm, he's precise. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. All the, like, the Arab, like, 19-year-olds part of the Muslim, part of the Christian, who are like, I need to glare at, I need to shout at, I need to like, it's like, I need to like, I need to intimidate them into actually doing their job and not stealing anything from the work site. When it comes to him, they're like lambs in his presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, they respect him and they respect him simply because he is, it's like, it's like, I just watch him for a bit, and it's like, there's no wasted motions, there's no fuss, there's no muss. Yeah. Like, the motions go, like, the adhesive goes onto the wall. Yeah. Everything goes into its place immediately. That's what... Um, it's like, he just, he just works an entire hallway that's, like, 18 meters long. Yeah. In, like, half a day. Yeah. Then he sits down, has a coffee, a cigarette, and some food, and then he does another hallway. Yeah. Then he goes home. Yeah, that's um, Miyamoto Musashi talks about it in Gorin no Sho, Book of Five Rings. And he talks about how when a man has achieved mastery in anything, he sees the whole world through that stuff. And it's absolutely true. I mean, I met a guy who was a musician and he read The Face on Mars and, I, you know, we talked about it. And then he explained to me how he saw it. And I was like, what the fuck? He realized that there is another way to prove the artificiality of those things on Mars because of how he thinks, which is to do with music and how music 
if you plot it, it creates like a graph. And so from the waveform for the sounds. Exactly. So from the waveform, he could interpret that, well, the shape of these buildings doesn't fit a waveform that's natural, so it's got to be artificial. But the way I'm, I'm simplifying it, I mean, he explained it to me, and at the time they explained to me, I, you know, I was listening and then I understood it, and I was like, fuck, this guy's a genius. How, how does, he just came up with that right now, you know? And, um, and yeah, there's, there's painters that will think in colors, and, you know, I tend to think through everything from a martial arts or fighting or strategy or tactics kind of perspective because that's how I relate to, to stuff, you know? And, um, yeah, it's absolutely true. When you get a guy that's got that level of skill, only the truly retarded zombies will will uh, will not have an effect on. Most people that spend any time in, in the presence of such a person, they, uh, they will have some respect, especially mm -hmm. their men. You know, men generally will... It's, it's like, but the thing is that if you would look at him physically in the street, <laughs> he'd just be like one more flat slob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the moment you see him work, it's like, okay, there, there's a mind and soul here yeah. at work. And it's like... Well, the, the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people think that the Russian system is bullshit because one of the main exponents of it looks like the Michelin man. He's just a fat dude who's like a round guy, you know, with like little arms and legs sticking out. And you sort of think, well, there's no way that guy's a martial artist. Now, I've trained with that guy, and I've trained with people that were trained by him. I mean, it's unreal what this guy can do. And, I, you know, and it's nothing to do with um, his... I don't particularly like him as a person because I, he's a bullshitter in a certain level, but not on his ability. He's not a bullshitter on his ability. But he'll try and fuck with your mind with like, um, you know, for example, he's an orthodox Christian. So he says, oh, those, those other martial arts, you know, you do like demonic patterns on the floor that invoke demons. I'm like, dude, I've done 30 years of karate. I know all the patterns of the katas and they don't represent anything in Japanese hieroglyphs, in Chinese hieroglyphs, nothing. You know, it's... It's just a dance, kind of. So he kind of brainwashes you a little bit in that way. And I'm not susceptible to that shit. And he, there is an element of brainwashing of people that train with him, you know, because he, like, he made this one guy, like, have his little arm locked up under his armpit. And you're like, oh, I can't move my arm. And I'm like, that's bullshit. That's hypnosis. I'm trained hypnosis. And I went up to him and I said, do that to me. Make, make me not be able to move my arm. And he, he refused. <laughs> he, like, pulled back from it. So, you know, there's that level of it. But in terms of ability, man, that, that, that guy could, like, smear me on a wall like a mosquito. You know, there's... And it's not fake at all. I, you know, I know of people that are, like, serious criminals, guys who actually, like, fight and beat people up for fun or even their job, right? The actual criminals, full-on criminals that saw the videos and said, who is this fat dude, man? Let's go there. And they come up to him and they like literally challenge him, sometimes at his house, like turn up at his house, like, you know, what the fuck, you know? But but I've, I've seen like a couple of them like at his um, at his training, they came to the training and, and you can see these guys are not, you know, they don't come there with like any kind of clothing for training. They're just like in jeans and like normal shoes and like in proper hardcore Russian, yeah, you bullshit, I'm going to fuck you up now, you know, let's fight. And he's like, oh, okay, well, if you need to beat me up in front of my students, I understand, I will allow it, you know. And they go there, and he just, he doesn't even beat them up. It's the weird thing, is he, he just like, 
the level is so different that he just like toop like pops them and they're like you can see that you know this is a hardcore guy who he wouldn't drop to the floor unless his life depended on it and he's all like <coughs> and he can't breathe anymore and he like walks back because he's all crippled from like being hit in the sternum or something and just tapped you know then he goes oh do you, do you want to fight some more or we okay now can we talk <laughs> within five minutes they're all like they went from aggressive rude ignorant pig type attitude to like bowing and say I'm, I'm very sorry I, I was very wrong and uh, it was very rude of me and I'd like to apologize to your class as well you know sort of, <laughs> and can I stay and, and learn some more can I come and train and then they come you know from that day they start to train with the guy but I, I promise you if you look at him in the street you, you wouldn't be able to tell and and he's a guy that I probably wouldn't be able to tell because he's so deceptive it's it's now, one of the guys that taught me, I was teaching at the time already, and this guy walked into the classroom. To most human beings, he would have looked like a peasant that walked in from the rain. You know, just a dirty peasant that walked in from the rain. And he stepped into the class, and I looked at him, and I went up to him, and I said, like, would you like to take over and teach? And the guy looked at me and goes, why do you say that? I said, well, because if you're sitting in this class, there's no reason for me to talk. So you want to take over? And he's like, no, okay, show me what, what you can do. Just maybe try to lock me. And I was like, why? I know that you can kick my ass. So he goes, no, I just want to see, you know, and then I tried to like put him in a headlock. The whole time he did not lift his arms from his body. Okay. He did not actually use his arms. He just, just with movement and like shoulders and his head. And I'm six foot two. I mean, I'm not a small guy. I've, I've been fighting all my life. I could not put a headlock on this guy. I was just like, yeah, okay, you've proved your point. Thank you. you know, and then after that, he started to teach and train me and whatever. But that's because I could spot him. I could see that he had an ability. This Michelin man guy, I wouldn't even be able to tell. You know, you, you just look at him and you think, well, that, that, that's just a fat dude. He can't even walk on his own two legs, never mind fight. And, you know, from that, I've learned Dude, just you never know who's out there. You know, there's just some guys that are on a completely different level. I think yeah. we've been going on nearly three hours, so this is almost an open stream. So, and it's probably midnight where you are, or past midnight, or something. Yeah, it is. Although I think I've spotted a gamma in your chat. Oh yeah, which one is that? John Rampton. Yes, he is. He's a prick, and I know exactly who he is, and I will ban him when we're done with this. But uh, okay. I was just, I just want to read his comment out. So, uh, Rudy Ran, yeah. I was wondering something, Trip three dots. Does your scriptures tell you to avoid drunkenness? And if so, how do you tend to apply that? Well, John Rampton is uh, a complete fucking idiot who is on record as saying that he used his own daughter to make his wife jealous. So, as far as I'm concerned, he's pretty much a fucking pedo. So, and not a word of a lie, John, you can go fuck yourself. That's it. This is my space here. You're not protected by any ilk or any of that shit. So you will be banned from this channel because you're a useless, drunken, pedophilic prick. And I'd like to say here, speaking personally, <laughs> to all you thin-blooded men. <laughs> okay, I am... 196 centimeters tall. 
I think in American measurements, that puts me at 6'5". Yeah. I'm also about 120 kilograms. If I were fully trained and healthy, I'd be 110, which puts me at the 260 pounds area. <laughs> okay? I can drink any three of you under the table <laughs> with any hard liquor of your choice. Plus, he's of German descent, so it's probably six, <laughs> not three. <laughs> yeah. No, there are little gammas, you know, and I don't know what his case is, but they're there. They're, the sad thing is that I've learned that uh, these kind of people exist in every, in every, um, in every community, really. Sad but true. Well, we actually have 42 people. Oh, we finally got the down vote. I was, uh, we got, Hooray. yeah, I was, you know, I'm always a bit loath to stop the chat until I get that one. <laughs> yeah, and just uh, to uh, pure and bear. Yes, it's. I've started with wine, and I've. I don't know if you say progressed or regressed to Russian fire water. Yes, it's vodka, but it's a good one. You show me the bottle again. Yes, oh. it's Russian standard. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the better ones. It's vodka. Yeah, it's a very clean and clear vodka. Yeah, which is why I like it. Yeah. It has no flavor, no texture. No. It's smooth, though. It's very smooth. Very. Yeah. No, that is the good stuff. Like, you know, the, the usual Smirnoff stuff that you buy in the shops or whatever? Like, my, my brother made the error of bringing that. When I went to see him in South Africa, there's a guy, there's a very good guy, Vadim Dobrin, who is a very good exponent of system. He's, again, one of those guys that you just, like, ah, fuck it, I can't touch him, you know? <laughs> he just can fold me into a pretzel. But... Um, so we were at his house because <laughs> the funny thing is my brother trained with him a bit, right? He never met me. We turn up together to, to his to his class, but he knew who I was because I, you know, we it's a small community of the guys at a certain level. So we, we turn up at his place and he's very Russian, you know, he goes, Oh, hello, Giuseppe. I, I am I'm wondering if I am training more times, I see you more often than I see your brother. <laughs> that was the first day he met me. <laughs> It was like just to try and tell my brother, hey, why are you not turning up to class, dude? <laughs> just... But anyway, so we, we go to his house and, you know, I just arrived. I don't have... So my brother said, no, no, don't worry, I'll bring the drinks. So we meet up there and my brother walks in with his two or three bottles of vodka. And Vadim looks at him and goes, what, what shit you bring me? Smirnov, what is this rubbish? I don't even use this to clean electrical parts of my car. This is shit. <laughs> then he goes into his fridge and he pulls out the super cold, I don't know what the brand was because it was in one of those uh, ampoules type things. And we did shots with that. And man, and the only other time I experienced that vodka was when I was in Russia with the actual Russian guys training. And it's so smooth. It's, I don't know, it's like drinking oil almost, you know, it's... Uh, like the, the two premium um, like brands I'm familiar with are Kettle One and uh, Van Gogh. Okay. There's also Grey Goose, but that one is actually French. And God help me, but Lord, why did you create the French? Uh, no one knows. <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, the French... Besides the making, they make good wine and good cheese, and maybe that's reason enough. Well, they, 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 they were part of the Crusaders back then when they were still men. Uh, but now, 
basically I've always said, you know, being being gay or French is synonymous. It's the same thing. Okay. I, I, I had to live with a French. It's why I asked you the question back then. <laughs> I had to live for like half a year with a French Moroccan uh, flatmate. Oh, wow! That's... And that, that was that was honestly spiritually taxing. You obviously gone through it some was... purgatory right here. Yes, <laughs> and I'm not joking here. I think I think. I think God arranged this yep. for me to have a pre-taste of hell. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. I've met one French Moroccan for about 15 minutes and I came close to shooting him in the face. Because it was just... Oh, there, there's something... There, I don't know, the mix of deception, lies, outright... You know, I've met some Arab people that I respect. But you know what I mean when I say the worst traits of the worst Muslim Arabic kind of insidiousness, if you want to call it that. If you concentrate that, then adding a bit of French arrogance mixture of the the the, the fucking cheese surrender monkey shit, and you mix all that together, then you kind of starting to understand what the proto French Moroccan is like, because you cannot really define that level of toxicity. <laughs> there. As, as an emblematic sort of um description of his personality <laughs> he, he would try to sort of like um, confine my personality to some sort of box yeah <laughs> and 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 he, he tried to like um catch me out in a lie on what sort of person i am yeah and all i wanted was for him to leave me the fuck alone yep yep Yep. Now they're incapable of that. They're, it's like poking human beings is their fucking mission in life. I, I don't know. They're, they're just a very, very... And, and the reason I said, well, you know, it's not any better if they're female, but at least they might be entertaining for 15 minutes before you, you know, have to accept like, with your like, life. But. Okay, so like the, the, the French Moroccan or the French Algerian females, at the very least... They are vivacious, yeah, and they have a very nice, you know, like a very smooth sort of milk with too much coffee, with too much milk yeah. sort of a complexion. And they're actually quite um, sort of passionate type people, and they're they're uh, yeah, they they have they can be very feminine. I'm I'm not saying they're not crazy and and uh, difficult to survive, but you know, if you're if you're a male shaped a certain way. I can understand you're falling into yeah, that trap. But the thing is, I'm like, but the thing is, looking into their eyes, and here's where this is part of why I think I was actually um, meant to be a monk. Yeah, it's because I don't obsess about women. Well, that, that, you, no, I got that sense. I got that sense when you said it. It's not. Um, look, most men obsess about women. I, you know. I yeah, like and them. that's the thing that even as a like. Hormone-ridden teenager. Yeah, I didn't get the obsession with women. No, I, it's I, like they're, they're I absolutely... could understand the physical attraction bit. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't understand the wanting to be approved, liked, and um, like um, uh, given like the whole like seal of approval from women. Yeah, that whole aspect I didn't get. Oh no, I. Uh, to be fair, I don't think I've ever cared much about that because I. This is going to sound extremely misogynistic, but basically, they, um, 
how shall I say, there's two types of women, essentially, that could interest me. One is a short-term thing and one is a long-term thing. Now, if it's a short-term thing, in the long term, I don't care what she thinks about me. Just care that, you know, I'm talking about pre, pre-Christianity, right? My, and, and I was pretty brutal about it. I was like, uh, do you want to spend a good half hour with our clothes on or, you know, two hours or a day or a weekend or whatever or not, you know? And it was, I was pretty much that direct. Um, and then from that, sometimes some things developed, sometimes they didn't. But my, for a long time, my main issue with, with women after I decided that I was not built for long-term relationships because I was really loyal and I really tried, you know, and then that didn't work out and then had another shorter relation and then a shorter one and then a shorter one and then they started to almost overlap. So it was like, oh, well, whatever. Um, and I sort of, you know, my, my, my main aim from a woman was that she didn't break my balls. And it came to the point where it's like, I'd be with a woman for like a day, two days, and the, the minute she started to like nag me or do some shit, that just I was like, bye, next, there's the door. <laughs> I was like, I don't need that shit, you know? If I'm sleeping by myself and I wake up alone in my house, I'm happy. I wake up happy. I go to work. I got a good day. Nothing's bothering me. Now, just because I want to have some entertainment without clothes on with another human being, does that mean I got to wake up and have a fucking problem? No. No, not at all. If I wake up and for whatever reason I am less happy when you're lying next to me than when I wake up alone, there's no reason for you to exist in my life. Bye. And that was pretty much it. Um, and here's the reason I think I am supposed to be a monk. is because I'm not even interested in waking up with someone next to me. And, and I absolutely... That's what goes back to what I was talking about that book before because there are absolutely people that are built like that. And, you know, I have that, those, you see, that's one of the things that people like talk about. Oh, well, do you think priests should be celibate or not? And I'm like, yes, yes they should be. Because that if, works. Okay, if I would have come to Christianity a decade earlier, yeah, I would have been a priest. No question asked. Well, it's never too But late. I'm too old for the priesthood now. Who says? Priests are generally accepted between, between the ages of like 20 and, and like 40, no, and I'm no. almost 40. Not, not true, mate. You just talk, to, talk, to, talk to the priest. That's absolutely, that's not true at all. You can absolutely become a priest. There's no, no reason. You, you'd have to do some training or whatever, but talk to the... You yeah, but okay, I'm, I'm 36. By March, I'm going to be 37. Dude, you've got your whole life. Trust me. Believe me. There is no age restriction on becoming a priest. I'm 100% sure. Talk to the man. Write him an email. Because we need a priest in, in, in there where you are. Hold that thought for a moment. Now the vodka runs out. Yep. <laughs> oh, I, I know this has gone on long and probably my wife is going to curse me for like leave, abandoning her to an empty bed. But Well, while he goes and does that, 44 on my end. See, you people, you young younglings. Kurgan, please roast me on Polish. Marcelerate, I've already roasted you. Because you're Polish, you don't fucking remember. I had a French Muslim Moroccan boss. He was fun. He's jealous of my homesteading. They're jealous of everything. French Muslim Moroccan boss. He's, he's jealous. He'll be jealous of the air you breathe. 
but it's not time and place. There is a bit shoot video of Kurgan roasting national. There is. That's number one one four, and it's on BitChute. Oh, forgive my. Um, and I think if you go on BitChute and just look for the Kurgan, you you should find it. Fifty two of you. So I need to go three hours before fifty two of you show up. Oh well. This has been really good fun. He's got something written on the wall there. I'm a curious guy. I'm going to ask him what he's got written there. Okay, I think that's the upstairs shower shutting off. So I'm probably going to say goodnight when he comes back. But um, thank you. It's it's so hilarious that there's 52 upvotes and one downvote. That's, <laughs> that's just beautiful. <laughs> oh, and those of you that probably are going to go whatever... The, it takes a huge amount of time for this thing to automatically upload by um, by its own little system. So it'll probably take a day or so before it goes up. But um, that's that's a good showing up here, and a lot of um... oh, let's see what have we got here. I'm a woman and can't even relate to women like that. The Kurgan. I'm not a nagger, but rather a lifter to a man. There are some good women out there. But, um, you know, a lot of them, I don't, I don't blame women for their craziness and their damage. I blame men, weak men. I've always blamed men um, because, you know, you could put it in a nasty way and you could put it in a good way. There's a, <laughs> I can't remember where I read this. I was just, Laurie made a comment and I was just answering it. Um, so she made this comment about, that she's a woman and she can't relate to women like that and that she's not a nagger but rather a lifter and uh, I was just saying that you know there's a good way of putting it and a bad way of putting it but so the bad way which was quite funny though I can't remember where I read this there was some guys arguing online about oh but women are doing this and women are all whores and women are not cool and and I've never been like that. I'm always like, look, it's men's fault. If women are bitchy, ball-breaking nag bags, it's because men, you know? It's like the, in England, it's a female-led society because the men are ballless, you know, basically. And, and this guy put it another way, you know, there was all these people complaining, all these millennials about, oh, but women are, are just not nice enough and they're not feminine enough and this, that, the other. And this guy wrote in all caps, and he was trying to argue for a while, and then he wrote it in all caps. And he was like, what fucking part do you people get, do not get, about the fact that herd animals do not have agency? <laughs> so he was basically relating women to being beasts of burden, essentially, that don't have any agency. And that's sort of an extreme view of it, but I kind of go that way a bit, because I think, you know, Women are, you know, a bit more ahead than small children and animals, but ultimately they need a guy to, and a good guy, not a bad guy, not in a bad way, but, you know, they, they need to sort of have somebody to take care of shit and, and lead them the right way. So I don't blame women for being crazy ball breakers, you know. It's a good way to um, end the stream. Yeah. Which actually goes straight to the Bible, the Genesis, to men and women. Yeah. Oh, you go to ahead. Adam and Eve, actually. Yeah, you go ahead and end the stream. That'll be cool. So, and Adam called all the beasts by their names, and all the fowls of the air, and all the cattle of the field. 
but for Adam, who was not found a helper like himself. Then the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon Adam, and when he was fast, when he was fast asleep, he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. And the Lord God built the rib which he took from Adam into a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Wherefore, a man shall leave a father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be two in one flesh. And they were both naked to it, Adam and his wife, and were not ashamed. Perfect. We, we are the children of Adam. We are the children of Eve. With the exception of people like me, who are probably meant for the religious life, we are meant to adhere to each other. Yeah. The women to men and the men to women, to one man, to one woman. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I, uh, I urge you to write to the priest and ask him about becoming a priest because honest to God, I think, you know, the way the stream started out was about you think that you're there for a purpose. And I definitely felt that too while we were talking. And now I'm starting to see the purpose. And in fact, we are trying to get this, pre if traveling is allowed and all that, I don't know what your situation is or whatever, but in October, end of October, beginning of November, we're planning to get this priest over to do a bunch of, because, you know, Catholics, we pop kids out like most people buy Smarties. So there's a bunch of kids to, like, get baptized and so on. Um, I don't see any reason why we couldn't do a little... Go find me or whatever to get you over here so you can meet with him and maybe speak about the stuff, get baptized yourself. So, I don't know, if it's something that you think you might be able to do around that time, let me know and uh, we'll organize something. I'll see. I also wanted to speak something to the, um, how to put it, it's just a, an errant thought. Mm -hmm. In a society that doesn't have any form of birth control, none, yeah. no abortion, nothing of the sort, yeah. there is a lot more room for the celibate caste. Oh, yeah. Just Absolutely. logically, naturally thinking. Absolutely, yeah, that's actually very if, if families, like a minimum of family size is six children, the average is eight, and like the, the, big, like the big families are 10 or 12. Yeah. Like... Giving over two or three children from each family over to like to be monks, sisters, or priests. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, know, like, I, it's like it's like an obvious thing you do. You know, I um, I could never be a priest because I'm not built that way at all. But you know, for example, the the, the priest that baptized me is you know he's younger than I am or whatever. But that guy is super awesome. I have the highest respect for those people. I know that I could never be a priest because I like women a lot and I, I wouldn't be happy not being married and not having kids. It's just not, I'm not built that way. And, you know, before I found Christianity, I liked a lot of women. And after I found Christianity, I'm with one woman, very happy, and I don't miss all the other stuff, probably because I did all of it. So 
kind of been there, done that, got the T-shirt and whatever. But, um, you know, everybody, that's the thing that most people forget also, you know, in Catholicism, Christianity, there's a hierarchy. Everybody has got their place and their job. And it's a very good thing that we don't all have the same place and the same job. I mean, you know, I can tell just from the way you, you speak and so on that you would make an awesome priest and, and you are very learned about a lot of the stuff already. That would be... You, I, I don't think you understand how needed priests are in this day and age and how, how much... I, I can't describe to you. It's it's really difficult to explain to somebody, especially Protestants that are in the chat, if they haven't experienced it and so on. It's really difficult to try and explain how much a priest gives to a community in terms of being able to give the sacraments to them, in terms of being able to... You know, I often repeat this. when we got, Just before we got married, we had to get confirmed, and then we did a 24-hour crash course on marriage and confirmation and all that, because... Our priest is like an old-style priest. You know, if you go to him tomorrow and you say, I want to be baptized, and he's like, all right, what do you know about Christianity? Uh, nothing. Like, all right, dude, we're going to do a crash course. How much time you got? Well, I got a plane in an hour. Well, we're going to baptize you anyway, and this is all that's going on in your head right now. <laughs> you know? He's a proper priest. Well, if you go to a Novus Orco, they go like, oh, well, there'll be one year of lessons. and That's not Christianity. You know, God wants to be baptized, you baptize him. And you put as much as you can in his head before you do, but you do it anyway. And, um, you know, the, the discussions that he gave, the, the talk that he gave to us about marriage and all that. And I mean, you know, my wife has been as wild as I have been in her own way. And she didn't hold back because, you know, she, she's truly an honest person. So she's sort of like, well, if I'm here, if I'm doing this, if I'm going to believe this stuff, I'm going to ask all the tough questions. <laughs> Most people would have blushed all shades of purple with some of the stuff that she asked him. I was just kind of, I was trying not to laugh because I know she is. And she'd come up with like, so what about anal sex? You know, <laughs> it was just going full bore asking him. And you know what? The priest didn't bat an eyelid. And he just answered straight. And, you know, that, those were even the funny, but were the easy ones to answer. But then, the precision and depth that he discussed all sorts of other stuff, you know, of relationship and kids and bringing up, you know. And neither of us has ever had any of the stuff, like, explained to us. I mean, I, I you know, kind of knew, I agreed with those principles anyways. But your average Protestant will go, oh, well, these guys are celibate. What do they know about marriage? They actually know how it works because they get it straight from Scripture and it's clean. They're not getting swayed by their own emotions, by their own experiences, by their own, you know, disordered sexual stuff or whatever. Um, so I think that's something worth talking about. If we yeah. ever, if we do make another stream, oh, absolutely, I definitely want to. Yeah, it's something worth talking about. The whole um, how unemotional real Catholicism is. Yeah. That's because I've actually, I've read some, for example, because I don't have access to baptism or, or, or confession, I've read some of the texts about, um, what's it called, um, real regret for sin. Yeah. There's like a, and there's an official word for it. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about and I'm reaching for it now. Um, 
The same here. Oh man, it's on the tip of my tongue. Not compunction? No. Damn it. Good grief. <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah, carry on. It'll come to us if we if we just forget about it for a minute. But the thing here's the thing. When it comes to actual true genuine contrition. regret. Hmm? Contrition, contrition, yes. Yeah. The real act of contrition is an act of the will, not the act of an emotion. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here here's the thing. I don't know when this corruption entered our thought patterns, but faith is not about emotion. No. It's an intellectual action of the will. Absolutely. And contrition is an act of the will where you contemplate and recognize God's height and transcendence above yourself. Yeah. And you recognize your own lowness and unworthiness before God. And when you compare these this this gap, this this chasm between God and man, that's the act of contrition. It's an act of the intellect and the will. Well, you know, that, that, that's interesting that you say that because I forgot to mention, but when you were talking earlier about purgatory and so on, um, and one of the comments was like, oh, so purgatory is shame before God. In essence, I would say yes. And I don't think that I got a glimpse of that by realizing from one minute to the next that my entire philosophy of life was absolutely, completely, 100% fucking wrong. And as wrong as wrong gets. And on this planet, on this world, the that humbling experience, I think, was a walk in the park compared to the clarity with which you would see that as a disembodied soul. And it must be absolute abject hell because, you know, I'm not scared of much. I mean, to be honest, I, I wasn't even scared of going to hell. You know, I was like, ah, fuck it, whatever. It's going to be bad, but, you know. But the more I think about this stuff, the more I become aware of it, and the more I think, I am definitely not going to enjoy any second of that. There's not going to be a moment of purgatory that if I get in there, hopefully, that I'm ever going to be like, yeah, it's not that bad. It's going to be absolutely terrible. It's, it's, it's a, a level of discomfort and pain that I don't think you can even imagine. And I know that I'll deserve every second of it that I've got to stay in there. And it's probably and that's going to be part and parcel of the, purg the purgation of purgatory. Yeah, and it's going to be probably a few thousand years that I have to be in there. So I'm not looking forward to it at all, you know. But it, it, it is what it is. And I, I don't think somebody that hasn't so maybe experienced that, I think it's very difficult to understand just how corrupt we are and how ashamed and, and, and absolutely wrong you we all are. You know, in, even the yeah. best of us is an absolute filthy little rat scrabbling around in a sewer. And it's uh, it's really hard to, to, to try and explain that. Uh, yeah. Well, on that note, I think we are past the three-hour mark, and we should leave the maybe celibacy yeah. talk for the next one. But I really, really enjoyed this. I definitely want to do it again. Maybe not three hours next time. Uh, I'm trying not to. Not to um, as a Catholic, we'll I can't divorce, more, but let's um, not push it. <laughs> probably the more focused subject. Well, you know, I think they like the rambling, though, and it'll give them something to keep them busy for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
I need confession. We all need confession, darling, but don't worry yes. about it. <clears throat> you know, it's not like God doesn't know what you did. You can you can confess. What know. I would say is, um, if your if your conscience is pricking you, and it should, that that's your yeah. conscience is um, that's his function. Yeah. Just look up. Um, well, uh, true contrition. Yeah. Because true contrition is the only path available to someone who just. If, if you don't have access to baptism or confession, that's your only gateway. Yeah. So look up true, con true contrition. Yeah. No, it is. And, you know, don't, don't worry too much about not having... I mean, it is, it is a problem not having a proper priest nearby and whatever, but God's not going to send you to yes. hell for you not being able to find a priest that's nowhere near you, you know? That's not how it works. So long as you strive to reach him. Yeah. And on that, I actually... This is a point I want to make. We are very obviously at the end of an age. Yeah. That is, there's no question here. Yeah. Age is ending. The question is whether this, whether this is the end of all ages. That's the open question. Yeah. yeah. If this is the end of an age or the end of all ages, we are all going to be offered the crown of martyrdom. Yeah. The question is, will you take it and fully embrace the thorns That's that this crown yeah. entails? I, I know my weaknesses. I know for myself, I got no hesitation there. But uh, you know, it's the people I care about that worry me. That's that's the only thing. So we'll see. But yeah, if it's just for me. As long as I can go down at least somehow fighting, that's fine. <laughs> like, you know, I, I think Vox put it right, says, you know, most people want to die. And like, uh, he said something like, um, if I have to choose how I'm going to die, I would rather be in advanced old age, strapped with C4 and in a room surrounded by my enemies. <laughs> the dead man switch. <laughs> If I had to choose, it's with the priest at my side. But if I don't have that option? I don't know. If I had to choose, given the state of the world, you know, taking out like a few hundred of my enemies by ramming them with a plane or something, I don't, I don't know. It's not a bad way to go. I'd like to go with a public execution where... I can declare on live internet feed you see, you that see. Jesus Christ is Lord. This, this is and all knees shall bow and declare that He is Lord. You see, this, this the is the question is: Do you declare this joyfully as one of His soldiers and servants, or as one of His enemies, one of His defeated enemies? Yeah trampled under wing by his angel you see that the difference between us is again you you're like you're announced the guy who walked for a year to get eaten by lions and he spread the gospel because of that incredibly i mean he's still remembered now over thousands eight hundred years later and that's the difference between what i call you know the martyrs are up here and then there's the people like me somewhere somewhere down there but god still makes use of people like me too so you know that's cool sometimes you have to have a jean perizot levalette firing muslim heads into the enemy camps through the cannons <laughs> it's uh, my lot 
<laughs> You've got rejoice. <laughs> the crown of martyrdom is being offered to us. Yeah. Just take it. Oh yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I, you know, the whole martyr. I, I don't mind being a martyr as long as I can take some with me as I go down. <laughs> I'm going to purgatory. I want to send a few of them to hell with me. You know, it's just like uh, you want to take a handful of them with you to purgatory. Wherever you know, wherever I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know one of my favorite songs is "Brothers in Arms," which always gets the missing hair on the back of my neck to stand up whenever I hear it. But yeah. But anyway, I think we've gone on. Have mercy on us, divine flame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all we all need mercy. I think we'd better say goodnight. We're at a three and a half hour almost. So thank you very, very much. We'll be in touch by email and maybe um, we'll do another one one of these days. Let's just try and maybe pick one that lasts an hour instead of three. But uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Was, thank you very, very much. And thanks to all of you guys that are still here. And and we've got our downvote, lucky. Okay. Thank you very much. Good night. I'm going to click off now. Thanks. God have mercy on us. Yep. God bless you, sir, and all of the people in the stream. Good night, all. Good night.